From beyond the farthest reaches of our galaxy they come. Two brains pulsing with a strange energy. These space brains come to share their love of science fiction movies. Welcome to Space Brains, the show where we joy watch sci-fi movies and tell you what was good and what was great. I'm Surrey and this is Mark. Hiya. Tonight we're talking about Interstellar. It's the 2014 film uh, directed by Christopher Nolan. So if you haven't caught it yet, what do you need to do, Surrey? Well, this is your spoiler warning. You better go back and watch it. It's available on your favourite streaming services or you can get it from Google Play, or you must be able to get it on DVD somewhere, I suppose. 2014's so long ago now that it must have come out in DVD. Yeah, if you're still watching DVDs, good for you. And you can probably order it online because we're all stuck indoors and it will get hand-delivered to you in about 14 weeks. And that will be a fantastic way to watch it. 14 so, weeks. Turn, yeah, tune back into our Space Brains once you've watched it. If you haven't watched it, like me, I had not seen it before we... Picked it for tonight. So, sorry, what was your number one takeaway from Interstellar? Number one takeaway is something that I hadn't really considered before, is that a wormhole would actually appear as a sphere in space. Yeah, I liked I that. Hadn't, I thought you would like that. I, I hadn't really considered that, and it makes a lot of sense when you think about it, mm. but always it's displayed as sort of like a funnel mm. into which everything goes, but... Yes, this idea that it would be, uh, it would appear as a sphere because from every angle you'd be seeing through this hole. So it's a hole that you're looking at in three dimensions, as the guy says in the movie, and and that would be a sphere. And then as you try to go through it, you wouldn't be going into it like a funnel. You would sort of, it would look like it doesn't move there, where you'd look like you would be approaching this thing coming up on the side, like you're going around it. Yeah. That's. Yeah, so that that was that was pretty good. I did I did appreciate that. I liked how they did this. He the the guy that explained it. I, uh, damn it, I can't. What was he, I can't remember his name. But um, he I liked how he did. He goes, yeah. They normally explain it like this, and he did the the bit of paper folding and the pencil through it, and it really made me think like how many films you and I have watched, and also how many science fiction films where they do that. They go, oh, to go through a wormhole. You it folds space and time, and they do the pins. In fact, they did it in Event Horizon, didn't they? That was the recent film that you and I reviewed, um, and they did it in that yes. movie. Sam Neill does it. You know, if you rem- do, you remember that? Yeah, I mean, uh, every every movie that ever wants to explain yeah. a wormhole or some kind of you know hyperspace travel does the pencil through pencil the through bit. two bits of paper. Yeah, and I, I loved how he kind of went. This is the way they normally show you. But when you think about it, it would be a sphere. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, like I loved that explanation. It was a real little, I think it was a real little dig at all of those other films that have always done that. And then them sort of saying, oh, well, this is more of the modern day science behind it, you know? And I really liked that idea. And it was cool when 
in the movie they they approached it and they saw it through the cockpit, didn't they? You know, they, they were staring at it off in the distance and because he had had yeah. problems with the motion sickness, he actually said, can we stop spinning? And they stopped the uh, spaceship spinning and there was there was a moment there where they both kind of looked through that cockpit window and you could see it and it, the shape was there, wasn't it? It was a different different type of Yeah, it looked like shape. a little shiny marble. Yeah. It looked small, but uh, I did like that when they approached it, it was actually really quite big. Yeah, yeah, and it would be. I mean, it'd be freaking massive, wouldn't it, to be honest? I mean, it could be any size, of course, but I think... Well, it, it would... It would, it would want to be like if you're going to be a helpful uh, fifth-dimensional energy being, yeah, opening up a wormhole, you'd want to make it big enough to be useful. Like, That's right. Trying to make a little pinprick through which no. to thread your needle seems a little bit, yeah, tough. I mean, you might. Why not make it big? You yeah, might as well go big. Big is always better. Come on, people. Yeah, well, that's an interesting takeaway. I like that. And for you, then, was this a movie of uh, hope, a warning, or an experiment? I reckon it is hope and it takes a long time to get there pretty much the end of the film but I think it is actually hope it's a film that kind of the story is bred out of you know humans ruining the planet again through we don't exactly know I I, I don't know about you at the start and we'll get into the plot in a few moments but I don't know about you but I, I was kind of a bit confused in that first 10 minutes not getting any sort of content like they kind of kept leaning towards things didn't they you know like i wasn't sure if there'd been a massive war i wasn't sure if like it was just that we had abused the planet too much i wasn't sure if yeah. um, like i, I was but very I, unsure i really quite liked it i quite liked the it was like a, a gentle apocalypse yeah 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 rather than having this you know world war three mad max zombies take over um, mass paranoia sort of thing. It was like maybe some of that had sort of happened a little bit. We don't really know. Mm. But it was just this kind of gentle apocalypse where we could tell things were things were winding down. Yeah. Everything was dusty for starters because of this dust and the uh, machines, you know, they had all old cars and stuff. Like you imagine that the really fancy technology had stopped being manufactured. Maybe. Yeah, which it, and it probably had, yeah. And there was a whole process where they're chasing after that drone to get a hold of the solar panels. Yeah. And yeah, so you got this idea that the world was was winding down. It wasn't a big poof and bang and it's all gone. It's just like kind of yeah, grinding to a halt. And the textbooks are saying the Apollo landings were faked. <laughs> uh, and you can see the, the political reason for that was because yeah. they didn't want people you know, looking to the stars when they needed to concentrate on what's going on here and mm. NASA is having to be in total secrecy because yeah. it's just not popular to explore space anymore. No, you can't waste... Well, like he, he literally says that, doesn't he? Um, um, the Michael Caine character says, you know, you can't, you can't be funding space travel when there's not enough food, you know, like when you can't feed people. So, um, and I, I, I agree, I liked that. And it, it, it makes you think of, you know, like, even again, the world we're living in right now, that we are having such a upside down society across the globe right now with the coronavirus. And, you know, of course, things could get much worse for Australian society and other societies, you know, if we just let people die and we didn't try to treat people, we just let, you know, we just sort of said, hey, it's business as usual and everyone went about their day and then all of a sudden you had like 
30,000 people needing hospital, like it, it would end up in it, allowing society to go that way. You would end up with maybe a civil revolt or, you know, really heavy conflict in a country like Australia because there wouldn't be enough beds and wouldn't be enough hospital, wouldn't be enough treatment and people would turn on each other. Whereas kind of the government's here making us, you know, bunker down and, you know, work from home and these sort of support mechanisms. The whole point of that is to stop society turning on itself, isn't it? You know, so I, I, I agree with you. I liked that there was these suggestions that some point in the past stuff had happened, maybe food had run out, maybe society yeah, wasn't Coop, as wealthy as it you know, was. You know, like Coop had made the, the, the comment that back in his day they'd been fighting for food. Yeah, yeah. Whereas now they, trying to grow they, had, they had enough food to kind of just, you know, you could see society was... You know, like when he goes to the school to meet the principal and the teacher, like you can see that society, they're, they're trying to function as an education system, but they're probably not quite the same power that education has, like, you know, in our current society. So it's kind of like, you know, it, it, those institute, they always, you know, you always talk about in a society, those institutions like law and order, education, politics, you know, um, religion. And like once those pillars crumble a bit then society struggles doesn't it you know and, and of course it can go down the the level of heavy violence and all those kind of things so you, you could see that the society was a bit edgy <laughs> and they were doing the best they could but it wasn't the flourishing society that we see today but it did make me you know i mean maybe um we talked about it with our last film the thing but maybe it's just because it's on my consciousness consciousness but definitely at that start of interstellar i was thinking about the world we're living in right now and how you know like a few wrong decisions by governments or a few of the um you know things didn't quite go or things were more severe like you had this virus suddenly the fatality rate was much higher like 30 or 40 percent right. like all of a sudden oh, at the moment would be like this couldn't it at the moment we're sort of talking about a two percent yeah um right look how severe if that, that is if that was like a 10 percent yeah, uh, you know that it doesn't sound yourself like ninety percent are okay, but yeah, that masks the big problem. Then that you think in your own life, one in ten people you know yeah. will be gone. Yeah, and so you know, I've there's five people in my personal the Hughes family. Yeah, and then there's four people in my immediate, you know, my wife and my kids, and then there's five people in her family. So there's like what ten? There's fourteen people one or two people are going to be not there anymore. Yep. And you look at that in Interstellar there where um, Coop's wife had died of a brain cancer. Mm. And he makes the point that if, you know, it's one of these dumb machines that we didn't have working was an MRI, which would have detected the tumor and they could have just, you know, cured her. It was a curable thing. But they didn't know until it was an autopsy. Yeah. They discovered what was happening and then, oh, we could have cured that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's that's a sort of that that human element that gets glossed over a bit when you're talking statistics, or or if the apocalypse is too dramatic. Yes. If you've got yeah. one of these dramatic apocalypses where you know a, a comet hits the Earth and causes a, a darkness for fifty years, and out of that comes the remaining <laughs> ten thousand humans a new spread across the world. Yeah. It's just become such a, a massive number and such a huge upheaval yeah. that the tragedy of that is lost. But when you're looking at these things, whether you're talking about families losing one or two people here or there from 
easily preventable things just yeah. because of a lack of resources or a lack of uh, you know machines in this case. Yeah, yeah, it's, and it all... brings that. Um, yeah, it bring it brings it a lot closer to home, I think. Yeah, it does. It makes it very. I mean, I suppose that's the thing. That's why I'm meaning that it it connects to. I know this movie was 2014, you know, six years ago. But me watching it now, I could see connection. I mean, we even did have our premiere here in WA, kind of saying, you know, we need to protect our resources because, you know, you are only a few steps away from anarchy and an apocalyptic society. If, for example, like you just said, if it's only a 10 percent death rate, fatality rate, well, you can think about all the workers in our society. Now, yeah, you and I are working from home, but there's certain people that need to go out there like the like people at the Water Corporation. And if you have one in 10 people, like you think about those engineers, you think about those water meter fixer, you know, um, meter fixer, which was a job that my dad did. You know, if that guy dies, you don't necessarily have the talent to always automatically replace it. Or think about power poles. You know, you have teams of, crews of um, you know electricians and, and guys that work on the power poles and what happens if you know that, that might be a team of 10 people you take out one of them but in a in a mass society that means every team of those guys that fix power poles when there's power outages lightning strikes anything which is still going to happen during this virus outbreak if you suddenly take out that expertise through a fatality of a virus uh, you're suddenly you don't have the people that are skilled to operate all of these functions that make society kind of livable, do you? And then all of it, that's all it takes. Like it just takes a few of those people to be knocked out. That the next thing you know, you do have full blown anarchy or sort of more of an apocalyptic state happening, don't you? You know, so you've got to be well, a bit at, careful. At work, we had the situation where a critical project was delayed by nearly six months. Because there were only, I think, two or maybe three people in all of Australia with the knowledge of how to set up this particular telemetry system yeah. uh, that, that, that reads from power generators and yeah. allows for control networks. Like there's only, there's only a couple of people in Australia yeah. who are able to do that. Yes. And they were busy doing something else. Yeah. So the and option was, you know, try and find someone somewhere else in the world able to do it of which there's still not many mm. and they're mostly busy or just wait six months. Yep. Turned out we had to just wait. Yeah. And yeah. And as you say, it, it could even just be um, in this, this dust bowl situation uh, in this movie, their communications and transport networks seem to be quite compromised. People have got cars and things, but yeah. it, you don't get the impression that people are just sort of jetting about the place left and right. There was no airplanes shown in the sky. No one, um, no one flew out to get Coop, even though he was like a great pilot. Because yeah. maybe they didn't even know he lived nearby. Yeah. Until he he turned up at NASA and they went, oh, Jesus, yeah, we'll use you. Yeah, so you could imagine then. It seemed a surprise that he was still alive, which I didn't quite, I, did, I didn't quite get that again. But I guess, I guess like you're just saying that, that um, now that you're saying it that way, it, 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 yeah. And they weren't really, they weren't on mobile phones, were they? And they weren't on the internet and laptops and computers. You didn't really see no, that, did was, we? You know? there was none, and there was, there weren't. They had, uh, you know, GPS run sort of robot harvesters, but they didn't have. Uh, yeah, they knew about drones, but they, they didn't have any on their own operating. No, which you would have thought they'd have. They just like send the drones out and have a look at stuff, but they they didn't have that. Yeah, and it did seem so, with those harvesters, maybe. I mean, I kind of got the impression that might have been because Cooper was 
you know, you know, like this was his thing, you know, that was his expertise. That was something that, you know, again, it'd be like someone like yourself, even sorry, like I could imagine you in the apocalypse having little robots running around after you and cleaning up things, but well, not everyone that survives the apocalypse has that, you know, you're the robot guy in the apocalypse. Whereas the rest of us are like down on our knees, scrubbing the ground, you know, like there's, there's always someone in the apocalypse that's, you know, they knew how to code things and they knew how to make robotics and, you know, they survive and they actually build robots even in a, because that, that sort of was what, what, what I got from even the impression, because with the drone, he was kind of like, you know, we'll take the solar cells, but it was all, almost like, yeah, I can take, I can rip this apart because there's parts in here that we can use for different things, you know? Yeah, he took the whole lot. He didn't yeah. just take the solar panel, no, the no. wings off. Yeah, it was a, it was a I, I mean, we'll get into that in a moment, so we'll come back to But anyway, I think hope because here we have um, this weird post-society post breakdown. I don't think apocalypse is probably the right world, word, sorry. And the world is, um, you know, it, it is broken. It's not the society we, we know and love today. And there's, you know, like this key, you can see these key pillars of society broken. The environment seems to be much harsher. Um, also, the the dealings that like like they have to be farmers. You know, obviously Cooper is is and he make you know he he kind of pretty quickly shows us he's not just a farmer, um, and he wants his children to not necessarily be farmers, but that's the way society has to be. And then uh, you know through his journey throughout the film it's I, I think there's a lot of hope because he kind of he's a ray of hope for nasa because he is a pilot that's been in space or the stratosphere as he says <laughs> um and then on top of that then the the whole film he's kind of hopeful to get back to his daughter isn't he He wants to get back very primal i, I liked that primal part of this story that really at the end of the day again it goes back to that blake schneider caveman story idea that you know, it was a father and a daughter, wasn't it? It was a father wanting his daughter back, you know? He wanted to get yeah, back and, to his and daughter. And I think that was the the illusion to wanting humanity back. Yeah, yeah, to I some think so sort too, of yeah. level of, um, you know, he keeps talking about, you know, we're pioneers, we're explorers, we yeah. should be out there yeah. getting amongst the stars. Yeah, and I mean, you know, there's hope, I think, that that the realisation of this film, the climax of this film is that, they kept talking about these other beings and him realising that they're not other beings, they are human beings that are maybe from the future and they've sent this information back to us to enable humanity to actually survive. And um, so, so to me it seems like, and even when he, you know, he does make it back to his daughter, you know, she's very much like, look, I've got family, nice to see you, Dad, but, you know, on you go. <laughs> You know, and it's like, and he wants at the end, like what you just said, he wants to kind of, I don't want to look at the past. I want to kind of keep searching forward. And again, I, I see this time, you know, it's a very, you know, if you and I are going to write a science fiction film one day, sorry, it's, you can see that science fiction, I th- I think a lot of the time, it does, you know, no matter what we, you know, this question, we say hope, warning and experiment. And definitely some films lean into one of these. But I think a lot of the time in science fiction that's based in the future, there's this constant question about what does humanity survive? And look, some sci-fi suggests, no, it doesn't, you know, like robots rule the world or whatever. But um, I think also it, it quite often sci-fi is no matter what is thrown at human beings, 
we tend to find a way, don't we? We tend to get out there. And if you remember in this film, uh, Matt Damon, Dr. Mann, he actually even says that to Cooper when he's about to kill him. He says, you can't, you know, before that scene, he's leading him off into the wilderness kind of on that planet that he actually says, you can't send a robot out here because they don't have fear of death. And it's that fear yeah, of death. They don't that, have that sorry? The instinct to survive. They don't have the yeah, survival, have the survival instinct. instinct. You know, they, they said they will make decisions based on numbers and the situation, which might be far superior than a human, but they don't have that survival instinct, you know? And it's it's interesting, isn't it? And I think this film really brings it back to hope. You know, there's definitely warnings in here and you could see it as an experiment, all this sort of stuff. But yeah, I felt at the end hopeful for humanity again. I think it was hope also because it was, uh, at the end of it, it's that strength of human courage, if you like, or emotion or that hum- human nature that they were depending on to win yeah they they weren't uh yeah they're looking for this uh to try and complete this equation they were looking to try and you know use their resources efficiently and and make use of a wormhole and so forth but at the end of it as as that revelation was that there really is this connection it is that connection that people have with each other which allows them to uh find solutions yeah so So let's let's get into this are we right let us know hit us up on the socials let us know if we're right what do you think hope warning or experiment so what have you been up to anyway sorry really quickly before we get into this massive super quick (laughs) what have you been Uh, i've been anything uh quickly programming a computer game yeah uh, well, I should be doing more writing. Uh, I am writing a short story, which is a retelling of Hansel and Gretel, mm. but it's um, it's a bit more horrific. Right. Okay. Have unpleasant. you ever read the? Sorry, just on that. Have you ever read the Brothers Grimm version of Hansel and Gretel? Uh, not the original. No. You I got have it. I've read got synopses. I've got. Well, I've I've got. I don't. I don't dare say it's not the exact original, but I've actually got this book uh tanya my wife gave it to me many many years ago it's great it's about a thousand page like a dictionary book and it's a brothers grim and in there is hansel and gretel like that brothers grim version the german version and um oh it's it's pretty brutal it's it's quite different to the the disney version so well yeah this this short story i'm doing i'm a real fan of retelling and that's because i think that if a story has already been told and is popular then it's uh, there's something to it that is worthy of knowing. Yeah. And in retelling, you get to pick out different aspects and sort of look at them. So yeah, it's a retelling of Hansel and Gretel. It's it's set in a modern setting, and there is a a bit of a character inversion where the witch is actually uh, sort of a kindly person, and Hansel and Gretel are not kindly people. And yeah, I'll see how it develops exactly, but it's it's a bit more of a horror story than it is a story of hope or redemption or pleasantry. Yeah, well, I mean, it's like the Red Riding Hood, how, you know, like there's that, um, they've made an adult version. I know there was a film probably about almost 10 years ago. I think that was just Red Riding Hood with that Amanda, um, I'm sure that Amanda Segfried's in it or something as a as an actress from Mean Girls, not sci-fi at all. But yeah, yeah I, and I haven't actually seen that particular film. But there's also a Red Riding Hood version that's 
probably a little bit better than that film. Oh, is it called Red or something? And I'm sure Winona, Winona Ryder's in it. It's about 2000. And I'd have to sort of get on the IMDb thing, but it's kind of like set in the modern world and, you know, like they're drug addicts and the wolf is like the drug dealer and that kind of, it's like a real analogy of the Red Riding Hood story. And it's, yeah, I remember watching that. It's a real little indie film. Yeah, I'll have to get the title of that. But um, yeah, like it's cool, like that reimagining sometimes of old stories, definitely. Yeah, so that's what I've been doing. And how about yourself? You've been trying to find time to write. Trying to but... find time. I'm squeezing in a little bit of writing, but the this yeah, the world we're in now has kind of limited it very tinily. I'm I'm going to um I think you and I have talked about this previously as well. I'm Tanya and I are both doing it, which is trying to sort of get up that hour earlier again. We we're trying to kick that in. I don't know why. I don't know if your kids are like this, but you set your alarm clock, you go, okay, this week we'll set it for six and then later in the week we'll set it for 5.30. You set it for six, the kids get up at five to six. You set it for 5.30, they get up at 5.15. You set it for five, they get up at 4.30. <laughs> I don't know if your kids have ever done that, but our kids seem to just have this knack, you know. The day, or it's even the same, like we've had a cut, like when I went and shot my, my film last November, you know, it's going to be a massive day. Can everyone... You know, I'm not saying it to the kids, but can everyone just sleep in a little bit? You know, I'll get up at eight o'clock in the morning. It's going to be this huge 12-hour day for daddy. I want to have all my juices firing. And then they're up in the middle of the night, you know, whereas every other yeah. night that week they weren't, you know. Anyway, I'm I'm complaining here, so I shouldn't complain. No, no, I, I do They I seem to have a little knacker. Tanya was the same when she made her docos. Every time she had a shoot, Mabel was up in the middle of the night, the night before the shoot. Like, absolutely bizarre, eh? Some sort of... um law of attraction going on there in a really yeah, negative this, way. Yeah, vibe, vibe is being picked up on. I've, yeah. I've done that when I've had to go uh, start work early, so I've got to get up at 5.30. Yeah. And I'll get up, at, you know, so I pull myself out of bed at 5.30, mm. tiptoe, tiptoe, and there's like my kids sitting out there already. Like, yeah. are you kidding me? I've got, <laughs> I don't have time for this. Yep. Can you make me breakfast? Get back to, I've actually made the, I've forced them back into bed of that situation. Just get back into bed now. You're not getting up until mum gets up. Mm. Oh, that, was, that was when they were younger and they'd actually still listen to me. Yeah, yeah, I know. They're, well, see, the thing, I, I will say that the thing is if Walt was like that or Tate was like that in my house, they're a little bit older, you know, you could just go, do you know what? Stuff it. Watch some TV. I don't care. It's not what I normally do, but today's a special day. Just watch some morning TV. It's not what we normally allow them to do in the morning, but just bugger it, do it, so that daddy can go get ready or do his thing. But then Mabel, she's just too young for that, you know. Like you, so you got to, you know, give her a bottle, get her some breakfast, change a nappy. You just got to do that whole schmozzle with her. So, but I've, I've, both of us are trying to do it for a bit of creative sanity. Um, it did work today. They kids did get up, like they were up when we were up. Um, but I managed to put on the headphones, did some writing. Mabel just sat next to me. She had her bottle and I just typed away. <laughs> so I kind of just pushed through it, you know. But um, I, mean, yeah, I, so I'm hopeful. I sat here and had to explain to Elliot yeah. the work I was doing. So I explained to him about what web services were and how I had to redefine this new one and <laughs> a new version. And yeah. I explained to him how... And I don't know how much of he actually recognized or realized, but eventually he kind of nodded and stood up and walked out. So yep. I think he, he came to the conclusion, oh, daddy does 
boring work. <laughs> I'm not actually interested in daddy's work anymore. I'll move on from that. But I will yeah, say, yeah. take some back, you know, we've talked about this as a writing resource for writers out there, um, the Stephen King on writing. He talks about, you know, he was a teacher by day. He had to do all of those, high school teacher, he had to do all that high school stuff, coming home to a wife and two little kids. So he'd have to do all that, get them to bed. And in fact, it was his wife that made him at nighttime on the porch. They used to have a little caravan. They were living in a trailer park at this point in time. You know, he's a teacher. And um, he used to sit out on the porch like 11 p.m. at night. She would do washing and come because she was also a writer. She used to do poetry, his wife. And um, yeah, and like she would come out and check on his writing and his writing out there on the porch. And that's how he wrote his first book, Carrie, was literally just like on the porch nighttime after being at work all day long coming home dealing with a wife and kids that are stressed out in a tiny little caravan um so i always like think about that and go well you know you just have to find those moments don't you you just have to you know and uh it's what tanya and i talk about a lot you just do you know what the, if we get up at 5 a.m the kids might be up at 5 a.m and we just have to serve them breakfast and then write like you, this is the this is the this is the world we live in you know yes so, so anyway, we'll move, we will move on. Yeah, That's we'll, my spiel. We'll, we'll <laughs> move on. It's just, so yeah, this it, film, we, Interstellar, we've mentioned 2014. Um, it is basically the little blurb, sorry, that I got off IMDb. I quite liked because I started to tell Tanya the story of this and it was going to take me half an hour and I thought, eh, I'm not saying it right. But the little blurb on IMDb, I really like it. says, a team of explorers travel through a wormhole in space in an attempt to ensure humanity's survival. That is a lean, mean logline, isn't it? So it's uh, written by Jonathan Nolan and Christopher Nolan and, of course, directed by Christopher Nolan. I'm sure when this film came out, I had a probably a near two-year-old baby um, with another one on its way. And this is part of the reason why I never saw this film. And another reason then over the last five years is because it goes for almost three hours with little babies. I never have three hours to watch a movie by myself. I mean, God almighty, I struggled to do it this time. And that's like when I've booked it in for us to do this podcast. (laughs) Um, But, and apparently this film in particular was uh, based on a little short story uh, and also a science um, idea from the writers of Contact the science fiction, the 1997 science fiction film. We should do that one day, sorry, maybe as a classic. That is quite a good film, Contact. Um, no, the writers you, get, of that you want to get had, me shouting, yeah, the writers I'll start had, shouting about that one. Yeah, yeah, the, the sound, listening to the sound. The sound is really good. It's a really good movie for sound, that film. Uh, and poor Jodie Foster having to defend herself at the end when no one believes her. Um, uh, but anyway, they took that idea and, um, they, I think it's Warner Brothers. I read a bit about this earlier today. Warner Brothers had it, um, and they needed a writer and Jonathan Nolan was kind of suggested. Steven Spielberg was part of the project. Um, Jonathan Nolan then spent four years writing a script. Uh, and then he was wanting to shift the script. He wanted to, he wanted to, um, you know, like, uh, Sorry, no, he, he didn't want to shift it. Sorry, he, he, he was selling the script. They were interested in it, and he suggested his brother. And his brother said, sure, but I want to do some writing on the script. <laughs> These two have written films together before, so I find that quite interesting. So, obviously, good old Christopher Nolan's come aboard and go, yeah, I like your script, but <laughs> I think we need to make some changes. 
That would be an interesting meeting to sit in on, wouldn't it? Those sitting those brothers and how they work. Well, there's a bit of a surprise next episode. I've got Jonathan and Christopher in the uh, oh, studio. Do you now? No, they've had to cancel <laughs> last minute. I'm afraid all the flights in and out of Australia have been cancelled. Oh, bummer! You can't get them on a Zoom so, call or anything. No, no, it's all over now. Ah, uh, bummer. I was going to say, I thought you were going to say, I have Christopher Nolan on the phone <laughs> with a K and um, Josephine Nolan on the phone. No, I, to I don't even know. They can give us I know a guy called Nolan. So Interstellar, it starts off with almost like a documentary style. So it's like an old woman there says, oh, my dad was a farmer. Like, I guess they all were at the time. Yep. And it it cuts in a, in and out to, uh, is, is it um, Cooper is trying to pilot something uh, yeah. up into the stratosphere and then there's like something's going wrong and then it cuts back and shows uh, corn crops or something and talks about the blight. Uh, it's it's kind of chops around a bit and do you know, dumps you, do you know, out. Sorry, just to cut you there, because I think you talked about this so well when we did Serenity, and it reminded me a bit of Serenity, the opening couple of minutes of this, because if you remember, it's like we see a bit of a documentary. We then cut to um, Matthew McConnelly playing Cooper, kind of having, you know, like navigating this, um, plane crashing, then he wakes up, and then his daughter's b- pulled us in about a ghost. So you remember Serenity? It's kind of like we were in a memory, and then a memory, and then a hologram, and then we we're in like the ship. You, you remember that? Like, and yeah. it reminded me. I don't think it was done. This it wasn't exactly the same, but it just kind of remember reminded me of that. It's like we were seeing one world, the documentary, and then we kind of went into the world of the crash, and then we we're in the world of the girl's bedroom. It was, it was sort of like that real quick. We had three quick things yeah. in a row. Um, there really was a, a lot of information being thrown at us all at once. Yeah. We're sort of dumped out into this world now where, where the, there's, there's a farmstead and you they, know, they're in corn crops. And they talk about the dust. There's the dust and, and, and we hear about that they have to have the plates set on the table upside down and, and, we, and we see them doing all these sorts of things with it. Um, and don't really know what's going on except you're getting a lot of information there which is it's quite a good way of doing it it sort of eases you in almost like you're, you're coming in from a documentary but as you said that's overlaid with almost like a uh, you know, a dramatization then mm. and then it merges just into this dramatization of the story as it happened and i do so, think i don't know if you thought about this when you saw it but it rem- the way that doco and they kind of come back to it with the lady and the man talking, because they kind of show that a couple of times and then, you know, obviously at the end it comes back around again. But in this opening sequence, you see it a couple of times. It, it really reminded me of, I'm sure I saw a couple of documentaries in history class in high school, those really boring ones about the Great Depression in America. And later in the film, there's a scene where they have all the, the old-fashioned farming utes and people leaving town all bunkered up and the couple of kids are on the back of one, you you know, looking depressed and starving. On the couch that's been yeah. chucked on there. Like <laughs> it was very not like 2020, was it? You know, and I, I believe this film, the idea is this film, it's like 2060 or something. Um, not that it ever says it to us. They... Yeah, I think on, online it says it's supposed to be 2067, but it's not like they ever tell us the year. But um, it, it distinctly looked like 
those wagons from the 1920s of the Great Depression, in, in especially in like rural America, you know? Uh, yeah, well, they took a lot of the imagery from the Dust Bowl mm. uh, of... In fact, I was just looking here. It says uh, the Dust Bowl phenomenon, phenomenon of the 1930s mm. as documented by Ken Burns in The Dust Bowl. Ah, good old Ken Burns inspiration. documentary maker. Oh, sorry. Yes. That's what I probably said. It's probably from one of his docos, I'm thinking. <laughs> um, yeah. So and it's... so we're introduced to Cooper. He's like a father figure um, and he's got a daughter, Merv. Uh, and a um, son, Tom, and there's also good old Grandpa, who, to me, if you put John Lithgow in a movie, I'm pretty bloody happy, sorry. Like, I like this guy, Raising Cain, 30 Rock from the Sun. This dude, like, he's been in some different types of roles over the years, but I'm a bit of a fan. I like this guy, and uh, and he kind of just plays... He, he again, I think, like you've just said, like them doing a lot of the imagery of the Dust Bowl. Someone like John Lithgow, for some reason, he kind of he 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 must be a bit iconic of that kind of old school American in my mind, anyway. And maybe Christopher Nolan's, I'm not too sure. But you go a farmer, an old school American farmer, and you put John Lithgow there. I'm like, yeah, that's an old school farmer. Yeah, he he played well there. He was the Father-in-law, as far as I could tell, mm. he'd been living with him. Uh, sort of had a, he was the almost like a mentor figure. He was, wasn't he? Mm. Yeah. Or a, what do you want to call it? Like, yeah, sort of not not necessarily a mentor, but he was the, he was the spiritual advisor. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Cooper obviously had troubles with losing his wife, and uh, I know Cooper's parents weren't there at all, so. But that, they, this older that, figure who gave him guidance. We, we learn this quickly because then you know pretty much after this they, you know, there's this weird moment. This navy drone thing flies overhead, and instead of them, well, in fact, yeah, they got a flat tire, didn't they? And they were gonna they were going to like fix this flat tire, and then all of a sudden this drone flies overhead, and you're kind of like in my mind, I'm like, oh wow, okay, this is a bit interesting, and then. You know, they all get they get into the ute and he just fangs it through the cornfield, doesn't he? And he's like chasing it, hunting it, and he's got a special um gun that he gets hurt, gets Merv to hold that, he gets Tom to actually drive the car, and he's on a laptop kind of tapping away. And he's telling us a lot about the drone as they're chasing it. And they're just barreling and through a cornfield, aren't they? Yeah, and through a fence and I love it. Off off towards a, a thing it confused me at first and what it was they were trying to do because you see that drone has clearly looked like a it was a serious drone it was yeah it's a military drone, mentioning yeah. it was a chinese uh it would have been a um like solar powered been circling for at least 10 years from which again is sort of that hint that there was some sort of conflict mm. uh yeah uh, but you know it had just been circling for no good reason yeah uh, and they said, well, why did it come down low? Perhaps it had picked up some sort of a signal. And it's not really confirmed what it was, whether it was because it was picking up something from NASA or because these gravity wave distortions were, were causing troubles with it. But, yeah, he, he gets gets control of it and lands it and just sort of strips it. And the next thing we see, the, it's on the back of his truck and they're yeah. pulling into school and the, the for one parent thing I teacher. Think before that, I mean, I'm not sure. If, it's probably not the saving the cat, but... No, it's not a saving the cat moment, but we definitely learn a lot about Cooper because he shows Merv like how to land it. He like lands it really gently, doesn't he? You know, like and he 
Like once he took control of it through his laptop thing, he kind of like gets her to land and they have, it's like quite a tender moment. And she actually says to him, why don't we let it go? Like it's like an animal, right? And he's like, no, yeah. you know, the parts are too I good. I thought that was very sweet there. It, it's not doing anything. It's, like, it's not hurting anyone. If it's oh, not doing it. anything, who yeah, cares, you know? Again, machine, implying to us it. that society has broken if it's Chinese. I think they say maybe Indian, actually. I'm not... I'm not oh, exactly. the solar panels are yeah. Indian. Oh, maybe that's it what just, it is. It like, says like, they're well, really yeah, good. We, the last time, we don't have Navy and Air Force anymore. So, you know, no one's using this thing. Let's strip it, you know? So um, back on the farm, we learn a bit about Merv uh, talking about this ghost in her bedroom. And it's quite a good kind of moment because he actually says, you know, they sort of debate that, oh, well, go- they're not a family that believe in ghosts. And so he, but he actually says to her, you document it, you write it down, you report it, and then that way you can analyze what it actually is. Like a very scientific brain on it, isn't it? Sorry. Yeah, and she's fully into it. She's got a yep. notebook there and she's been, uh, you know, taking notes and she, She's trying to figure out if there's Morse code, uh, and that's the thing, which which happens a bit later on, I suppose. But so then they like we... have a moment um, that night or whatever. John Lith, very rural John Lithgow. I love this John Lithgow and uh, Matthew McConaughey having a beer out in the cornfield, basically, you know, on the porch. And it's a very thematic moment because they're just chat, they're just talking. But he said John Lithgow says uh, that when he was a kid. There, there was six billion people on the planet, and so that, I guess that's giving you possibly a time element to us, isn't it? It's like he's you and me as an old man in a way, um, yeah. and he's saying that there's six billion people on the planet, and all those billion, all those people wanted and had to have everything. And you know, if you think about it, that's what we're like, aren't we? You know, in this world, um, and I actually think the coronavirus might be a way that we change that in a little bit, like the idea that we all must have a car and a phone and a laptop and, you know, photos and and the latest kitchen stuff. And, you know, like we all, and clothes, too many clothes that you can't even wear. You know, it's consumerism going crazy. And so I think, you know, it's interesting because he's kind of giving us a bit of a theme that there must have been a point in humanity, which is sort of like us now where... Six billion people on the planet, and if they all want a piece of the pie, um, there's not enough. You know, like we've got to think about being more resourceful with our planet, don't we? We have we got to think about looking after our planet. We all have to cut back a little bit. Well, I saw think? someone wrote a little piece. Uh, it was uh, just sort of maybe a sentence or two, and it said, um, "So just you just think about the situation. We've ruined our economy." Because everyone's only buying what they need. And I, I thought that was kind of nice. And it sort of touched on what you're talking about there is that yeah. if we if we all only, you know, buy or, or consume what we need, then suddenly there's this huge problem and everyone's falling apart. Yeah. Which is it's interesting. And and that's is. obviously what's happened in this film. Uh there's been crop failures and and the dust bowl effect. They so, had the little chat. Yeah, we go to the baseball um, match, and that's you mentioned it before. That he says, you know, um, in my day, you know, we had baseball players that could play, 
<laughs> and then he's like, well, in my day, we fought over food. And, then, you know, like, so there's a real sort of, again, historical, you're sort of seeing the timeline, aren't you? So for John Lithgow, um, there's a there's baseball meant proper baseball, you know, the way we see professional sports. So, again, John Lithgow is giving us a window back to the time before the conflict or before the famine or whatever happened, whereas for Cooper... He's come up, he's been born in a world like 30 years later um, when the world is a shitstorm, I suppose. And speaking of shitstorms, that's what happens. The, yeah. The, the, uh, the baseball players suddenly stop and look up and there's this great big dust cloud coming in and over. So everyone just sort of goes, oh, well, I guess the game's over and they all stand up and pack up and go. Yeah. And they get back to the farm and this is the interesting thing here because they, they get in and there's dust sort of blowing around. Yeah. And Coop says, oh, I forgot all the windows closed. And they look at Murph and he goes, well, my window. And they, they run up to her bedroom, which is where the ghost is, of course, slam the window shut. And they see these strange shadows in the dust that's floating down. And, and it's the dust is sort of piling up into set little grooves on the ground, which, of course, totally fascinates Coop because he's like, okay, there's... Maybe not a ghost here, but there's definitely something yeah. going on here. And he investigates that for a while, doesn't he? He, he like he flicks a coin in there and he says, tells Murph to get a pillow because she's not going to be sleeping there tonight. And when she comes back in the morning, he's been, I guess he's probably been sitting there all night looking at this situation. And he says, it's gravity. And he, he proves it by flicking a coin and the coin, I think, sort of falls funny. Yeah, it, kind of, it looks like it gets like slammed into it doesn't it like gets sort of sucked into the piles of sand yeah, or whatever and it, yeah and it's not morse code he figures that it's, it looks like a barcode but it's it's binary he says yeah. so he starts writing it down and he goes it's numbers coordinates yeah which is <laughs> yeah it, it was nice that they brought that along quickly because a lot of times it takes a little while for them to figure out. They, they walk around for a while going, numbers, what could yeah. these numbers be? Why would there be numbers? You have to just get to the point. It's either a Bible reference or it's coordinates. Just, you know, see, see, that's to all me, it ever is. And to me, this is what I said at the start about the film explains science, but there's all, there is moments, you said there's moments they don't explain science, but you don't always have to explain the science too much, you know, because then that, that kind of is a bit boring. Like, Show me what this means, you know, like get to the point. I mean, I, I, in that scene, to be honest, when he said coordinates, I'm like, okay, like, uh, it's not what came into my mind, but all right, you know, like I was thinking more, okay, it's a message. What's the message going to say? And he's going coordinates. And I'm like, okay, like, I, I don't really care because I'm here to watch a movie, you know, like I want to get to the good bit, you know, so. Yeah, I agree. It was good that it was faster to get to that point. Um, but I also think it proves that you don't always have to spell every little thing out, you know? No, and, and this movie, it skirts it back and forward a bit, I think. When they, but he, he jumps in his car yep. and tells everyone they've all got to stay home. Yep. And sends Murph Of course, Murph, Murph off. doesn't. <laughs> Murph doesn't want to. So he jumps in his car and drives off and... Uh, his son, Ever Dutiful, stays behind, but Murph is... He's a good man, his son. The... Yeah, he's a bit of a nutcase towards the end, but yeah. that's okay. Murph is hidden under the blankets, and 
I think Coop was just a little bit pleased, secretly yeah. pleased that she came along. And it's like, yeah. oh, okay. Because in that school scene, we'd saw that um, Coop's son had been relegated to being a farmer because yes. that's what he's going to be good at. And talking to him at the at the ball game, it's like, yeah, okay, I love being the farm. I, I love the, what you do. It's, it's good. And Coop sort of dies a little bit inside when he goes, ah, oh, I don't want someone who's just going to settle down and be a farm. But fortunately, Murph is little daddy's little girl and, and wants to grow her brain and learn and, and discover. So mm. I think he's he's pleased that she's jumped in the car. Oh, with him definitely. And they, yeah, they, he is. He is. They f- drive off and they, they drive along for, uh, oh, I guess into the evening. So what must be, you know, you imagine six hours or something. Yeah. Uh, and or it could have been all day. I don't know. Yeah. Goodness knows. But they, it, it doesn't really matter too much. But they they end up at this fence and he goes, gets his bolt cutters out. And this is part of their world as well, is that in in our day, you turn up and there's like a locked up fence. You kind of, you don't just go, oh, I'll just go cut the bolts and go in because this, they, someone's bolted it for a reason and they're going to be on the other side and they're not going to be happy about you cutting your way in. But I get the feeling this world that they live in is far less inhabited and yeah, a lot of the government I, infrastructure I mean, I, I do is think gone. It probably you know, gave us a little bit more insight into them as characters part, didn't it? I mean, this is the thing. We didn't actually focus on that school scene when we've gone through it, but it was like at the school scene, he debated that idea of like the government changing the textbook so that it was better for society not to look at the stars and get down to being farmers. But he debated that. And he, he get, he, he, if you remember, he comes out to the car and he says, oh, I got you suspended. <laughs> like she didn't get suspended on her own account. He, he encouraged the suspension. And it's like when they got to that gate, he's like, oh, there's a locked up gate. Damn it. And she goes, don't we have bolt cutters? Uh, I'm glad you <laughs> agree with me. You know, because it was like, it was telling us, I think even a bit more about Merv and him that these guys, man, they want to break the rules a bit, you know, like it doesn't really matter that there's a locked fence. They're going to, they're going to open a locked fence, you know, whereas maybe you and me wouldn't. We'd go, oh, damn it. It's locked. We probably shouldn't open it. It's very cool then because we've got this super bright light and this commanding voice telling them to back off or do whatever. And you're sort of worried that there's going to be guns involved this voice screams into the uh, yells into the car very commandingly tells the little girl do not be afraid <laughs> and that's yeah that works so well with 10 year olds uh, i've always thought yeah i know that i think you would just they would just scream wouldn't they yeah do not be afraid i, I said stop being afraid yes yeah, so anyway i told you stop being afraid damn it <laughs> murph gets uh taken and, and so does coop and uh i think Coop wakes up. He does. So yeah, he, he does. He was tased or something, wasn't he? He got tased. There was a little zapping sound. So he he wakes up and there's this voice addressing him. It, it took me a moment to realize it was that weird 1960s looking, looked like a 1960s computer mainframe. You know, there's this silvery box. It was bizarre. Hey, like, I mean, as the film goes on and these are the robots that they have, but... Far out, they are bizarre robots, aren't they? I mean, it's a totally different take on a robot because it's just. I, a... I really loved it. It it spoke to me of practicality. But yeah, and I it's... agree. Like I, 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 as as I said, as the like the, as the film went on, and you saw more and more what it could do. You, you, they gave it attitude. They, 
you know, they gave it humor, they gave it sympathy, they they gave it a purpose, and they also showed some of the practicality that you just mentioned about it. I agree, but it was it was a bit. Um, I mean, which made sense because we're just waking up like Cooper and there's this thing. And I liked like, you know, he wakes up and he basically bags it for being a shit robot. Um, and <laughs> the she even says... models are a bit dodgy. Yeah, yeah. You know, like you can't always trust them, which is kind of interesting, you know, because again, it's like that old cliche that we can't trust the robots. Um, but so, so I think what was nice about that is it was quite abrupt of that, oh God, this is a robot that is, inter- you know, like it's interrogating him. Um, it's powerful. You don't really know. And he's actually even saying, oh, look, these are shit robots. Like, again, it, it speaks to the society. And when Anne Hathaway comes in and then she get, she actually answers him by saying, well, it's all they could spare it. You know, so you have to put up with this is as good as the robot we get now. Yeah. And, so, <laughs> and she's um, Professor Brand. Professor and he Brand. says, oh, I knew I... She says, oh, you know, I'm... Uh, Amelia Brandt or something. Yeah. He says, oh, I knew a professor back at whatever, Professor Brand. Yeah. This is what makes you think I'm not one. Yep. And you can see him sort of go, well, I mean, <laughs> obviously not the professor I knew. Yes. Um, yeah. It was, a, it was that little... Um, well, he says, I mean, he said, which is good for his character, he says, oh, he was far better looking than you. You know, like, because yeah. this is the thing, he's just kind of having a dig at everything, isn't he? Yeah, so it's quite good though, and it, it gets it taken off into this room, conference room full of serious-looking people, and there's and there's the professor. Brandon there's knows. the old professor played and by his, Michael his Caine. Daughter. I mean, how good Michael is Michael Caine? Caine. You yes. got to love him. And Christopher, don't, good old Christopher don't Nolan, go loves. into the night quietly into the night. <laughs> yeah, burn. Gets, they get put in this film, didn't they? Do not creep quietly into that. But Michael Caine, Christopher Nolan, Michael Caine, they, I mean, he likes him. He's a little bit of a, um, I think the fact that he is British, Christopher Nolan, Michael Caine is a great British actor. You know, he's in the, he's in obviously the Batman series that Christopher Nolan did. Um, and he's, you know, he's kept him in this film, hasn't he? Still yeah, there, sorry? And, uh, yeah. It seems to get very serious uh, and, yeah, uh, Coop's all worried that he's fine. He covers, yeah, he covers uh, Murph's ears and said, "You know, I need some assurance that we're going to get out of here, and not in the boot of a car." Yep. And everyone around the table sort of looks a bit odd and goes, "What? Do you know who we are?" <laughs> and he's no, we're NASA. <laughs> <laughs> we don't kill people. Yeah, like, <laughs> what do you think? We we don't have goons. Yeah, so that is so quite good. Yeah, and from there we get this big sort of sequence of information, um, exposition, you know, between Cooper and... It's Professor Brain, is it? Brand, Brand? Is that the right Brand, name for Michael Caine? Yeah, it's yeah, quite a good, uh, as you like to say, the Pope in the swimming pool. Yeah, what? Because the wall opens up, as he's given exposition, the wall opens up mm. and there's these rocket thrusters. Yes. And immediately yeah. you're sort of going, what What the hell is there They're yeah. in a room next to rocket thrusters? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and they're walking around this thing and there's like, there seem to be these greenhouses where they're studying the plants and there's mm. this spaceship. Yeah. And yeah, like, so even though he's sitting there saying how, yeah, we sent out 12 thing watts it's the Lazarus missions and we did, the, you know, we get yeah, this whole backstory. Yeah. You're still fascinated by the fact that there's this a spaceship and you're excited because you go, ooh, we're going to get a spaceship action. You know, this isn't just uh, theoretical sitting around the ground 
movie. This is no. one we're going to get in a space. It's a good. Kind of, um, it's called Interstellar. We know, but still. Yeah, and it's a good sort of um, like you say. It's the Pope in the pool. It's it's showing us. You know, it's it, it, we've got a character filling us in with all these blanks, um, which makes sense because Cooper is totally in the dark, but they're visually showing us so much uh, information in a go to, to prove that, you know, this isn't just theoretical. They're ready to go tomorrow. Um, and I think he, he even jo- there's a good line there because he even jokes like, but you didn't even know I was alive until, you know, an hour ago. And then Michael Caine's like, well, that's right. Well, now you're the best option, you know? Like, we, we didn't know you were an option before you showed up here, you know? So I kind of yeah, like that. I, I think that's that, that breakdown that they've had, that infrastructure is much poorer. There's, yeah. The house is living out in, in the cornfields. It's like an old 1930s house. Yeah, there's no, there was no indication. He had a laptop, but there's no sort of indication of high connectivity. No. Yeah, there weren't. There weren't flat screens about the place with Netflix showing, for example. No, and so they go through that. Um, they have this. Uh, the, the information they also say is like the plan. So the the plan is that there's this anom- anomaly showing up. It's a wormhole near Saturn, um, and the idea is that um, the the plan is to go through the the wormhole. And on the other side, they know for certain because they've actually done this ten years ago. They sent off. Was it 12 missions, I think? It was something like 12. Yeah, 12. They sent off 12 there missions. Were 12. And they've got their it's pictures funny. on the wall of these brave people. They went to these planets and their job was to try to communicate and send information back if the planet was any good. And a couple of them have managed to, you know, ignite the beacon and send some information back to them. So now the plan is to send a ship to kind of reestablish humanity and make sure that then we can shift this whole big NASA station um, there. And then plan B, which Anne Hathaway reveals, is that if they can't get this NASA headquarters off the ground, um, uh, and this is very Iron Mother. Did you find this? Like they have all these embryos ready to go. And it was very clear, like she was very clear about, she said, you know, that we'll, I think she's, was it like 300? They had thousands there, but like there'll be 300 that would get the ball rolling. And then they, those 300 very quickly would then raise the thousands that were there sort yeah, of idea. Like um, they incubate the first bunch yeah. for 10 years. Yep. Um, but then within yeah within 30 years, they could have a colony of hundreds or something. Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. And, um, I'm not sure exactly how they're going to do all that, but yeah, let's just you know, roll with it. But it was very Iron Mother, don't you think like that? I mean, Iron Mother's yeah. come after this film, but I, I straight away was like, oh, wow, that's like the Iron Mother kind of set up in a way. Except that... The robots and this are these frightening refrigerator-looking things. <laughs> um, so and yeah, and then Murph. So so you know, there's a bit of a debate there of like, he's going to captain it. Should he do that? And he he obviously does want to do it. And Murph is. Um, she gets a message from the ghost at this point in time, and the message is stay. And yes, she doesn't but, want him uh, to leave, you know, and so... But he, he just thinks it's made up and... Yeah. And go. I mean, he, he had to go. I mean, it's, I mean, he had to, yeah. And it's just, you can't expect a 10-year-old, though, to accept no. that the world is coming to an end and there's sort of like this one long-shot chance of some benefit. Mm. So he he does go and he leaves his son the car. His son seems to be taking a bit 
better, but as it turns out, he didn't. I know he wasn't that keen on the whole deal, but no. So yeah, I mean, he goes off though, and he's he doesn't get to say a proper goodbye to his little daughter, which no. I think makes him quite upset. And they they jump in their spaceship, and they're going to go, and Tars the the robot makes a joke. Uh, what was he says something about? Um, yes, I'll, I'll need human slaves for my robot <laughs> empire or something funny. And yeah. So they, they turn his, his humor sitting down from 100% down to 90 yeah. to 75%. And they're asking about honesty. And he says, at 90%, and he says, oh, is that really the best thing? And they, he points out, well, sometimes, you know, for diplomatic reasons or, or for, you know, safety, we need to not quite be 100% honest. Yeah, and he says, so okay, I, I think okay, he says 90%. something like, when dealing with emotional beings... Yes. Meaning humans, it's best not to be at a hundred percent. You know, there's some yes. sort of line like that that he says. You know, so it's like, yeah, you don't always want to be honest, a hundred percent honest. Well, it's nice. It it comes back later on when Cooper asks, "Is that ninety uh, percent? You don't think it'll work, or ten percent? Ninety percent you think it'll work, or ten percent you think it'll work?" You know, asking. Are you saying it's going to work because you want us to feel good? Yeah. Or do you actually think that's the case? So they so take off from planet Earth very traditionally, space sort of um, space rocket, uh, you know, that takes off. There's quite a impressive scene, isn't it? You know, that we're in this cockpit. It's very logistical, yeah, it's, like a like a NASA taking off, the, like what we've got the seen. Multi-stage rocket yeah. drops off behind them, as and, they, it, and they it is it's, it's Cooper, it's Anne Hath- Hathaway's character. There's the robot Tars. Um, there's the Doctor character, and there's um, David. Yeah, I don't have all those names actually in front of me. The character name was David. Yeah, and there's the navigator. Oh, so Romilly. Romilly was David is the actor. Romilly and Doyle. Right. And Tars. And good old Tars. And they catch up with Case. Yes, and they so they 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 get out of Earth and they dock. Um, and this is where he sort of takes over and flies the spaceship. He's, you see that he's quite happy about that. And they dock at a big space station, which is a big circular thing, kind of looks like a bunch of sea containers all connected to together um, in a very circular format. Um, and they get on board that really quick and quickly and very efficiently, don't they? Um, and yeah, they basically, he starts flying that and he's got to spin it. And you see that. I, I don't know. I remember they said something about G's. I didn't quite pick up, but it was going at a couple of G's. And of course, that character, what was his name? He he doesn't like it. He needs a drug, kind of Romilly. like a seasickness. Romilly doesn't like it. He yeah. gets motion sickness, so he he takes and his. It's three. You know, like, he they, they kind of emphasise that because he's like, oh, I'm, I'm not feeling well. How long is it to Saturn? Three years. And so it's like, uh, oh, okay. Years. Uh, no, no, so two years. Two years. 22 months. Okay, so it's, yeah, but still, it's months. like, oh, God, he's going to be seasick. But they, they, go in a, they go in a hypersleep for most of that. So yeah. I think they, they were like two months flying out and the, they did some video communications back where um, Coop doesn't hear from Murph but um, manages to say you know, goodbye to his son. Yeah. And then they, they go to sleep and 22 months later, wake up coming into Saturn orbit yep. where they receive their next lot of messages, Yep. which, again, doesn't include Murph. So he's, he's still a bit sad that he, he had this bad goodbye. Uh, yeah. But 
I guess at the same time that this is where we see the the wormhole. Yeah. They they stop the spinning. We see this wormhole, which is this spherical thing, and this this wormhole rendering took huge amounts of time to render. That was actually based off some real science. Um, what do you call it? Space time manifold equations, which right. which was done in part uh, as a research study. At the same time, so they, I think they got some of their funding for their visual effects. Um, let me see. I was, I was going to try and find this. Mention, I can't find the mention of it. But anyway, I think they got some of the funding for their special effects because they were using this computers uh, to to render what had previously just been theoretical equations to come up with this spherical look. And as they approached it, as they went through the wormhole. They got a bit more creative because what the hell is that going to look like? Nobody actually knows. Yeah, that's right. But, and uh, yeah, I, that, it was quite good there. And they, they went through the they, they go through the wormhole, and and that's a bit of a two thousand and one. In fact, yeah, the whole docking sequence and going into the space station was a bit of a two thousand. Yeah, thing. I was going to of... leave that to later with the the you know with the cinematography and stuff. But yeah. far out, there's a lot of two thousand and one in this movie. Yeah, it's inevitable, really, isn't it? Yeah. Considering the plot, but yeah, they get out, and that's where they they they're in this new system where there's three candidate worlds: one that's close to them, and two that are far away. Mm. The one that's close to them did get a good signal short for a short time. Yep. Uh, I'm saying there was water and good atmosphere, but then that's it's not sending anymore. Yep. Like it's just it's it's or it's a repeating or something. Yeah. And then there's the further ones. They've got uh, they're still getting tele- uh, telemetry from uh, Doctor Man's planet, and the one further out, Edmund, that stopped. They got a bit of they got some good news, and then it stopped suddenly. Yeah. Yeah. So they uh, they need to figure out which of these three planets they're going to go to because the you know they've got a limited amount of time and fuel and resources. Definitely, and this is this is where the first, uh, I guess, the next nerdgasm comes in, where they start talking about this gargantua, which is a, a rotating, a rapidly rotating black hole, which these planets are orbiting around. And this one that's close to it is actually within its gravity uh, lensing effect. Yeah, which is where relativity. There's enough gravity basically to um, bring relativity into play. And they're saying that when you go down to the planet, every hour is like seven years for someone who isn't on the planet. Yes. So they're really concerned that they're going to, you know, um, basically waste a whole lot of time. They, they've got, I think they were originally thinking maybe they've got about 40 years of Earth before things would become really just too far gone on Earth. Yeah. So they've got to, they've got to budget their time very carefully and they, they come up well, with a... Yeah, and I think, I mean, um, this is where going back to sort of saying the caveman story for Cooper, when he realize, when he hears this information, he's like, yeah, but hang on. If, so if we go down there, every hour is seven years. My daughter, she's already a couple of years older and she's already pissed off with me. If I go down there for seven years, you know, she's going from being, I think she's maybe 10 at the start of the story or something like that, 10 or 12. Yeah, and it's 10. like, oh, you, you can do the maths, can't you? If we go down there for a couple of hours... She's suddenly like a 30-year-old, you know? So 
he's very concerned about that, I think, isn't it? It's that primal instinct of all... I didn't really sign up for losing like 30 years of my daughter's life. Yeah, so... But he comes up with a compromise where they'll orbit on the far side yep. of the planet and they'll just just duck in and duck out. Yeah. He says. Yeah. Which, as it turns out, is not as simple as it seems. No. And this is a really cool sequence here where they... They're coming through the clouds and, and there's oceans and water and it's it's a bit tense. You know, you're coming in too fast. Since there's no, it's um, very efficient. Yeah. And and it's really cool because they come down, it looks like the whole place is just water. Yeah. And he puts down his landing gear and lands and the water's only sort of calf deep. Yeah. But it extends just horizon to horizon. Yeah. Uh, from, from where they are, it, it extends out to the mountains in the yeah. distance, which, as we learn, they, they find the beacon and that the ship has been crashed. And that's not mountains. Yeah, it's it, an enormous it's, it's a world. It's a great moment, isn't it? Because Tars, it's like we're, we're sort of, you know, it's that good old, the beacon is here. We're on top of the beacon, you know, but they're walking in knee deep to the water, as you said, and... Tars then lifts up the beacon and it's wreckage, you know, and it's like, oh, and yeah. then they sort of notice parts of the wreckage and they're like, oh, it's off, you know, part is off near that mountain and that's when that realisation that, well, hang on a minute, that's not a mountain, it's a wave. Yeah, we've just got these sort of mountain-sized waves travelling around this whole planet, which is, uh, I guess, the um, the tidal effects of being near a black hole. Isn't yeah. It? So the yeah so there's there's that race where she just wants to get the data. You know, she she's does. so desperate to get that data, and then there's a race back, and Pearl Doyle doesn't quite make it because he does that that cinematography thing, that that movie thing, where it's like quickly jump in, jump in, and instead of just jumping in and slamming the door shut, he pauses, yeah. slowly looks up at the enormous wave that's coming over him, and he just gazes at it for like about five seconds. And he's like. Okay, well, you deserve to die now. That's just the way it is. Sorry. Yeah. Your survival instinct did not kick in. And, yeah, so he he loses it. They, they manage to just slam it shut. And this, they go surfing on this wave. The, the yeah. ship goes up like a big mountain. And it comes flying down the other side. And the engines get flooded. And so they, they put their landing gear back down. They've got to wait for it to drain. But there's another big wave coming. And they, uh, and they, well, they, they blast out the, they put their helmets on and blast the cockpit oxygen air out through the engines. Yeah. And fire up, and they just, just managed, escape. Yeah, but they've been delayed by uh, a few hours because they've had to wait for the engines and all sorts of things. And I think that th- is it around then when they say, "I don't get it. Um, how come we were receiving this message?" And she says, oh, you know, Brandt says, well, because of the time dilation, uh, she'd probably only been, you know, the, the doctor, the scientist who ran here, landed there, had probably only landed a couple of hours ago and had probably just died minutes before they arrived. Mm. And uh, it's, it's, that's kind of a mind, you know, fuck there where you sort of think, yeah, you're like, by the time you arrived, uh, this crash had only just happened which is a bit strange and they yeah. come on out and they connect up to the station and they're 
worried because, of course, they spent a bit longer down on the planet than they expected. And poor old um, uh, Romley is up in the station still. And he comes out looking a little bit dazed and in his pyjamas, I think. And he's a bit older. They, he's got a beard. and Yeah, they find out they've been gone for 23 years. Yeah. And he'd learned all he could from the black hole and spent a few stretches sleeping and things. But, yeah, basically he was kind of a bit... Yeah, I think he took it quite well, all things considered. Yeah, he was he was a bit, um, you know, he, I kind of thought, you know, like, I think instantly because Cooper's, you know, upset and all this because you're thinking, yeah, his daughter's and son is 23 years older. But, you know, like I did really think about Romley because like far out, he's been on that, he's been on that little ship on his own for 23 years, you know. And he did say that he slept a couple of periods and he obviously spent a long time observing the black hole, which was probably really his kind of thing. But you're just like, wow, being, being alone for 23 years, you know. Yeah, it's a pretty harsh sort of yeah. thing. And this is the reality of this sort of space travel, and particularly when you're dealing with, uh, you know, I guess if you were traveling close to the speed of light, or in this case you're very close to a, a deep gravity well, that you end up with these strange differences in time. Mm, and know. they realize now that have they've spent too much fuel and too much time, and they've still got two planets to check out. And I thought this is a, a really good scene here where they're debating. They're saying, well, one of the planets is closer, and but it doesn't look good, but it does have a beacon saying everything's okay. Yeah. The other one has got much better telemetry. The, the data from it sounds far more promising, but it cut off very quickly. Yeah, We don't know if that's you know, what that means. Yep. It's also further away. So if you go to the one that's further away thinking it's better then you may not have, you, and it turns out to be rubbish, they're not going to have the ability to come back again. And this is where Brand has her little monologue about love and the connection that humans have, transcending space and time, you know, that even though this Edmund is probably dead, that, uh, you know, she, she still really feels that that's where they should go. Yeah, and she... Cooper, she talks about like that's where the theme a theme in the film is coming up isn't it because she's talking about the fact that she is in love and this person may even be dead but the fact she's in love with this person she she's really got that urge to go and it's the same later with Matt Damon saying you know a human has that survival instinct versus a robot well the survival instinct will a human would do weird things to survive, you know, whereas a robot won't. So, um, and they joke about that. I just suddenly thought connected that, you know, they do joke about with the robot, you know, like sending the robot off on a self-destruction or, you know, a mission that he's probably going to destroy or die on. And the robot goes, I have to do what you tell me to do. You know, like, so it's like mm. you, they don't have that same autonomy that a human does, do they? No. So they and, and also hear this is where he's notified, Cooper's notified that, well, in those 23 years, there's a bunch of messages that he can watch. So he sits down. And, I mean, this is where it's the impact. It's really nice that they decided to do it like this, I think. And, I mean, being a father myself, and you might have had this experience. I mean, I don't know if I would have had the same experience. Maybe if I actually had seen this in 2014, 
you know, with just one two-year-old. But now that I've got three kids, I found that scene quite powerful because, yeah, like you think he's only been down on that freaking planet for a, a couple of hours, but 23 Earth years have gone by. And then here are these messages, you know, and the message is like, the first video is Tom the way we know it as well as an audience. Like he's a, he's the teenage boy and he's talking about taking a girl to the dance, you know, or something like that or liking a girl. And, and then it cuts nice to girl. the next video, yeah. he's holding up a baby. You know, he's like, oh, this is your new grand, you know. And then the next video, he's kind of like talking about the farm and the world and and whether there's any point in making these videos, you know, you've been gone so long and you do really think about that, don't you? I mean, especially I think as a father, again, that's that real primal instinct um, of the well, film. It was around about here that uh, Pip was bawling her eyes out. I heard a little noise and I looked across and, and she's mm. crying. And I, looked, and I have to say, I was, I was surprised at my own reactions. I thought uh, it was only after I, I heard uh, Pip, my wife, if anyone listening, having a bit of a cry at this, these videos. And I still looked back and thought, ah, oh, I didn't think of them as being emotional. Yeah. That's a strange, it was, it was just like a, a strange, because often, yeah, these sorts of things do sort of, you know, get me right in the uh, feels as it were. But yeah, this not, one, I don't know I, why, I, I just wasn't thinking of that. I was probably still thinking about the, um, about time dilation. Yeah, and you were too holes. excited by that. I knew, I knew you'd be excited by that. It'd be tickling your little funny bone away. But yeah, for for me, for us normal people, sorry, uh, yeah, I didn't cry, and I do, I do cry. Movies do make me cry sometimes, but it di- it didn't go that far. But you know, I I did. I mean, straight away for me, and I think again, this works when you're a parent, and this is a this is a very parent moment because I don't know about you you have these moments where you think far out you know like I, I can tell you like with my three-year-old there's times I'm just like oh fuck I wish she was a bit older and then immediately you're thinking but if I wish she's older she's older you know what I mean like that that's it she's no longer this yeah. age and you, as soon as your children grow up a little bit more and you, you know this from your the age of your yeah, kids well, now I know that with you go with well, my they're never ever going to be a two-year-old again and there's good there's bad to that there's definitely bad because a two-year-old is a two-year-old you know but then you go fuck me they're never going to be two again are they like you're never going to have like i've even had these moments recently where i've thought um a friend had a newborn and i'm like oh my god a newborn is so hard but then i thought i'm never going to really have a newborn again you know you're never going to actually hold my newborn you know what i mean like you might as you get older you might hold a friend's newborn or you might my kids might have babies and I'm a grandparent, but it's never going to be yours again, is it? You know, you're never well, going to I have that I noticed that with Ivy. She's now kind of a bit big to pick up. Yeah. Yeah, she's she's just growing so fast. And every now and then she asks, can you pick me up? And I'm like, oh, it's just, I'm going to hurt myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's just no. the, the reality of it because I really want to. I want to like hoik yeah. her up and throw her around like i used to but yeah and uh, the same last time i like did a... that i just about did my back in because she's yep. like three quarters my size now so yep and i'm the same with Walt. like work. i feel for him because i remember being a kid and my dad going i can't i can't pick you know like i'm not picking you up but i'm gonna pick your younger siblings up and there's that moment as a kid where you're like well, i want to be picked up <laughs> yeah. and i've seen that like because walt said pick me up like because i've twirled the other kid and then I've gone, if I twirl you, I'm going to do my back in. I'm not doing that. Like, I can't yeah. I can't do my back in, you know? 
So it's definitely, yeah. and you see that. Like, I, I did. I did. I literally did do that when I was. I was at yeah. the beach. You know, I was throwing Elliot yeah. in the water because he's still quite little, and Ivy threw me, and I'm like, I'm just throwing her and throwing. Her. And the next day, oh, Jesus, my back all yep. down. I was just, yep. I was thinking, gee, that was, that was close call. If there was, if I'd been a bit more vigorous, I might have, might have actually done something a bit dangerous. There. Yes. Anyway, we yeah. diverge, but there is a very, yes. and I will say, I think as a filmic technique, it was very clever that. You and you might have picked up on this, sorry, as well. But the video is playing, and we do see a snippet of the video. But then we have this really long, slow zoom tracking shot in on Matthew McConaughey. And I got to say, as an actor, he did this really brilliantly. That, like, he sort of he's laughing, he's laughing as, and we sort of, you know, he's talking. The Tom's talking about taking the girl to the liking a girl, and he. You know, blah, blah. And then it cuts to the next one. He goes, oh, this is your grandson. And then we're kind of tracking it and he's laughing. But then the laughing turns to crying. And the crying yeah. goes from more like, you know, I mean, sometimes people cry because they're happy. It sort of is a bit of a happy cry to like a really then he go, kind of starts sobbing a bit. and it's But it's such a long, uh, you know, tracking zoom kind of feature in onto Matthew McConaughey Cooper. And... um yeah, I thought it was a really brilliant way because it didn't didn't really matter to us as an audience what was on that video. It was it was his reaction to that, you know. Yeah, and I think it was a good way of just reminding us what the stakes were. So that's like, right. He was, yeah, that's a really good point. What he'd given up, he'd given up this, you know, seeing his son come, and he still hasn't received any messages from Murph. Yeah, and then all of right a sudden the there very, is a Murph right, message, isn't there? Right at the very end, when we think that it's all over, yeah, she pops on. He's, I think he was just about to turn it off, like yep. he sort of grabbed the the thing and went, ah, oh. and then it comes right, on with, with Murph on and, and she's an adult, <laughs> and like there's this woman that we, we can only assume is Murph, and yeah. she explains that um, the his father-in-law, John Lithgow's character, had died, and was being buried, you know, next to where his no, 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 uh, no. His wife was, and no, that's Tom says all that. Tom was. I said. I said. What does what does she say? She, she was, just sends oh, him. She sends. Oh, she she yeah, sends she him a really out, nasty message. She's like, yeah, I've you never said done any back, of these it's my birthday. Yeah, and this was the birthday where I. Um, you, know, you yeah. said that when you came back, you might be the same yeah, age as me. It. I'm the same age as you now. You when got you left, it, bro. You better come back home. You know. Be really good if you came back home right now. Yep. And you're not here. You've let me down. I'm going to go be a stripper because my dad hates me. You know, that whole normal cliche. That's what she says to him. It's a very NASA stripper. Yeah. She's a very, um, yeah, it's a very nasty daughter to father message. I, I, that's what I like literally in my notes. I was like, Murph sends him a nasty message (laughs) because it was, it was, it was, um, and it, the good thing from there, it kind of transitions and we see what Murph does, like that she's working at NASA and... Um, yeah, it's a good little um, segue in there. It and was. The, because we don't feel like we were jerked out. Of it. it was similar to, I guess, the start where they went from being this documentary and became less documentary and then it became just the movie. And, and he's done the same here. as like message. And I think even while she's giving the messages a voiceover, it's showing her working in NASA. Mm. 
and then the voiceover goes away and then we're just left with her doing her thing back on earth yeah and it it cuts it, you know it cuts from her to then the ranch and i mean we didn't pick on it in this cuz it's a minor thing but very early in the film um, Cooper and John Lithgow and that they talk about one of the neighbors burning the crops because they didn't work out. And in this yeah, moment, going from Murph's video, it goes from Murph's video, her nasty message, and then it's back on the family ranch. And Tom and that are they're burning their their crop, so it's kind of like in the time that Cooper's been away, which is quite a long time now, twenty three years, like. I, it felt like at the start of the film, the neighbours burning their crop because they're not doing a good enough job. But then it's like, we're really desperate here. We're now burning our crop. It's not turning out. Yeah, it's that, not working. I think that's it. They're burning a third. They've lost yeah. another third of their yeah. farm. And he says, yeah, and if this sort of keeps up, I'm going to have to take over so-and-so's farm. Mm. And there's that question, well, what's he doing? Yeah. And Tom, Tom that's his name, isn't it? Yeah, Tom, the brother. Just, yeah. just kind of is quiet and doesn't answer and you know goes on and the dust, so you, you assume the dust that seems worse like it's it's worse than what we had seen earlier in the film um yeah well we, we get little young coop jr um, coughing up a lung yeah c- <laughs> coughing coughing up a bit of something and Jeez, there's a dad, concerned look my lungs? <laughs> yo dad a concerned my lungs look. Are coughing. yeah yeah they're not they're not but, in a so, good state are they and we do get a bit of that relationship now between uh, Murph and uh, um, Dr. Professor Brandt working on the gravity problem. Yeah. And they're, they're trying to work through these equations I mean, a bit circular and they think they might have a bit of a breakthrough here and there, but I think we don't really get any and resolution. He, he's complained of being an old man, but I, I mean, like straight away, I'm thinking, geez, you've had a long time to work on this. I mean, honestly, if you'd still not figured it out, you know? Yeah, honestly, I, I would have figured it out. Yeah, no, you sure. would have. Bloody put you on the job, definitely. But, oh, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, in this bit here, he, they have a moment. He does say about, uh, what's you probably remembered the exact line, but he does say about... Oh, what does he say? It's a, it's about the gravity that 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 kind of sets her off a little bit, doesn't it? It's like there's a moment there he says, uh, it's yeah, it's not, uh, it's not old age. It's my enemy. It's time. It's time. I'm a physicist. It. Yeah. It's time is my enemy. Time is my. And so it's, that sort of sets her off. She starts thinking about the equation a bit differently. Um, and anyway, then uh, he is dying in the hospital. And um, she she rocks up to his sort of deathbed uh, and um, he basically reveals to her that there is no way, like, to get off the planet. There's no way to get off planet Earth and, and it's, you know, it's not right. And she kind of asks him and he starts doing that freaking poem again, doesn't he? Do oh, not go into frustrating. the... I mean, that's his well, last dying words. Do not I think go it's, into it's, the night. You know, it's yeah, like, he oh says... He does say that we're we're missing, like it's circular. It doesn't resolve itself. We're missing yeah. the information, and unfortunately, that's in the middle of the singularity of the black hole. Yeah, and there's no way of getting information out of that. And so she realizes, and this is a great. I mean, to me, I don't know the exact moment in the film, the time. I mean, it's a three-hour movie, it's really long, but I think I, I feel like that's probably almost 
it, maybe it's after the midpoint, but it's a really perfect. I would see that as quite a good midpoint because it's like you're telling me that they've been working on this equation to save humanity. They've sent this spaceship off into space that has had this disaster of losing 23 years of, of time. But then it, it's revealed in this moment that, in fact, they sent those people off in the spaceship and it's a bit of a sham that they're going off to try to solve which planet's the best planet to, to, to bring humanity, but humanity can't go there. There's no way to get humanity there. Yeah, no, they're just trying to keep it was everyone a trick. busy. Yes, and which, of course, while, so. connects back to us, you know, that in fact that we've been following Cooper's journey, that it's like, you know, the whole point is at some point Cooper's going to get back to Murph, but here, no, it's pretty much saying, well, no, he's not going to get back. He's never going to get back because that was never the plan. The plan isn't for him to come back. The plan is for him to find a new planet to impregnate with the human species. Yeah. It's a bit grim. And and I think that they take a little while to grapple with that, but they, they do head off to... The new... Man, and I think this well, is they, a, they don't know. They don't know. We know that as an audience. Uh, yeah, you know, but Murph they don't know that. Yeah, that. But, and I was just thinking that Cooper... Cooper basically says they should go to Man and not go to Ed. Yeah. They have Edmund? that discussion Sorry. about, well, they've already because had I, that, but they've decided, you I, know, the, she, she says to him, Anne Hathaway says, remember she says, if it turns out that this planet's wrong, you then have to make the decision to kind of go to the next planet instead of going back to earth. And we'll see, yeah. she, I can't remember the exact line, but she's basically saying to him, you're picking on me for being personal right now. You better yeah. not choose to go back to earth for your daughter. Because that will be on you then, you know? Yeah. So they decide to go to Dr. Man. They go to Dr. Man and they come in on the planet and there's frozen... Remember, it's like a frozen cloud. The spaceship clips. It's yeah, I love that. It hits it. a cloud and the cloud's frozen. There's yeah. Bits of ice particles come off. <laughs> and he, it, it's, 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 it's not funny because promising. He goes, it's, it's quite funny because he goes, frozen cloud? And they all they just kind of all look at each other, you know? But it, it's, it's nice here. They, they find... Man, and that's um, Matt Damon. Uh, I'm Matt Damon. Matt Damon, yeah. Which is <laughs> I can't like thank you, South just, Park. I can never ever Matt Damon get past. Yeah. I'm Matt Damon, <laughs> and he's he's so the funny good thing Matt is Damon in so many good movies. But it's like like whenever he comes into a movie, I can't help but do the Trey Parker, Matt Stone. Like I'm Matt Parker. I, I, I'm 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 Matt Damon. Like but the, the funny thing is, of course, that they've got Matt Damon. And he's just playing like a a relatively small part in this whole thing. Yeah, he is. So that went and shelled out the cash for Matt Damon, who would be able to pull people to his movies just by his name. Yeah, yeah. But the, uh, he's not even on the um, you know starring list or anything. It's just an also no. what as. Which but, I found funny. But. Just on a side note, sorry, like the movie does that a few times. Like um, uh, the bro- the farmer that when he's an adult, Tom, like who is not a big role either. Like it's a, ro- a small role. That's Casey Affleck, Ben Affleck's brother, who's been in lots of big Hollywood movies. He's quite a good actor as well. And he he's, that's a pretty small role as well for him. Um, the Doctor as well is Topher Grace, you know, from... Um, that 70s show and he plays Venom 
And it, like he's been in about 80 yeah, different I, movies as well. Like he's, I was trying to remember where I recognized him from. Spider-Man yeah, 3. Spider-Man 3, he yes. plays Venom, yeah. But it's like he's been in a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, some of it is lead. I mean, recently, if you look him up on IMDb, yeah, maybe the last five or so years haven't been the greatest. So maybe when he did this, you know, like he's not an A-grade act, an, A, an A-grade in terms of Hollywood, oh, excuse me, status. But... Um, you know, you think about him, even John Lithgow, like we were talking about earlier, like he's in the film and he just dies. Like you never, you don't actually even see the death. You don't see anything else about him, do you? Michael Caine no, just... is dead by the middle of the movie. Like these are all really big actors that could just lead films. And um, yeah, they all play minor roles, don't they? Yeah, well, I mean, having said that, Matt does a, a stellar job as man. He comes out and he's he's telling them how you know he's uh, so pleased to see them and yeah, so good and and he's making up all this bullshit about oh yeah once you get down below this ice layer here there is a surface and you know the atmosphere changes and it's all a lot better and you know it's, you, you do get the feeling that he's talking a bit fast mm. and you know his his robot tip is or Kip is dismantled yeah. and he's just like yeah yeah don't worry about him. And yeah, he got infected, and and sure enough, the um, uh, you know, man takes Coop off to show him the um, uh, descent site so they can actually get some more readings and and you know, Tars is bringing in the the other ship. I can't remember what it's called, the Lander, which yep. has got the um, embryo growth capacity on it. Whatever that is, like the chamber or something. Yeah, well, they, they come up with a the, plan, don't they? Because, like you said, Ma- Dr. Mann has said, well, look, it's crappy here, it's cold, whatever, but, and the hours are long, like it's a 67-hour day, it's a 67-hour night or something like that. Um, but if you go down to the surface, it's, you know, manageable and blah, blah, blah. So they come up with a plan because Cooper wants to go back home. So Cooper's like, we'll spend the next day, like, getting you sorted, you know, bringing the planet down, getting the babies going, all that kind of stuff, and then I'm out of here. Um, yeah. And with that, um, he, he Dr. Mann says he wants to take him off to... I wasn't 100% sure why he took him off, actually. I'm, I'm not sure if they explained that or not, but he's like, I've got to take well, you I off think to it's show... To, to show. View, the, view the site and, and have a look at the... Um, everything under the... under this frozen... Uh, wasteland sort of thing, shell yeah. that they're on yeah yeah and was, then I, that's I, I where did get he a bit does confused his... by that bit but that was fine he he works off and he admits man dr man admits his planet has nothing yeah well it's this nice little monologue there that he goes on about you know survival instinct and as a father you would you know the last thing that you're going to see when you die is your children and that's yeah. going to spur you on so that's why it's good to send you on here and he's basically sort of making a case for, to try and explain away his actions to say, mm. well, you know, like, I just want to survive. And so I am doing everything I can yep. to think of to survive. And they have, they have a fight and we're thinking that um, uh, Coop's going to die because he's had his face mask, you know, cracked. Yeah. Oh, evil Matt Damon. Yeah, Matt Damon gets gets back to the ranger and jumps in just just as uh, you know, Coop gets a communicator and says, hey, pick me up. And they, they pick him up and there's a chase into orbit. And Tars points out that he disconnected the 
um, auto docker and it's a different setup uh, so man it's got very little chance of being able to dock and so they're trying to warn him don't do it don't do it but he's like yeah no whatever and he tries and he, he keeps clumsily bumps he does a pretty good job i mean yeah. let's let's face it considering it's years different technology and if a good 10 years after the lazarus missions so it's, it's different technologies he doesn't have the automated systems and he's by himself he almost gets it done he presses the button to open the door and you know blasts out uh, some of the atmosphere and that knocks the ship to the side which kaboom knocks it all off course and it was very cool space chase like the old um you know trying to get a hold of the runaway train you know the 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 stage coach is running up next to it and the horses and they jump off onto the train and they've got to get up the end of the train and, and pull the brakes. And it's the same sort of thing here. They they chase after this spiraling space station as it descends ever closer to the frozen atmosphere of this planet. But thankfully, they managed to do it. And in doing so, they discover they have precious, precious little fuel left. In fact, they don't have. Uh, I think. I think they, the idea is they've got enough fuel that they can do a swing, close swing by the um, black hole to give a bit of a, a boost out to the distant planet. And while they're going to do that, they're going to drop off Tars, who will fall into the black hole and try to send back this mysterious quantum data. Because uh, who is it? The uh, Murph has managed to get in touch and tell them that there was no plan a and the only chance is that you know plan a can't be solved they can't solve this gravity equation because they don't have information from the black hole no that's right yeah and so that's that's the plan then and um there's a bit of a confrontation there where uh man oh no not man you know like brand is confronted to say you know you knew this all along and she said no i had no clue and you get the feeling that indeed she'd, she'd had no idea either. So yeah. her dad had been lying to bit, her. She was sort of a bit too, like, I mean, you kind of implied that she probably knew, but then she was just way too upset about her father. Like, it seemed like yeah. she was quite upset emotionally. I have a feeling that it was a case that she had guessed. Yeah. Because, like, her dad had been working on this thing for a long time. Mm. And. Yeah, hadn't made any progress, and so she'd probably she probably had a suspicion that that meant there was no solution. Yeah, but I think she was running on a bit of hope, and also this this thought that she'd be able to get with her her boyfriend Edmund. I, I thought that was quite good because, like, for a, a pretty big chunk of the movie, Brand uh, she she'd been Brand had been. Um, She'd been pretty cold, you know, she's pretty sterile. You know, there was that mention really early that, you know, she was 100% honest when even the robot was saying you, should only, you shouldn't be 100% honest. And, you know, she was, she was pretty cold as a person. So in that moment, suddenly she was quite emotional realising that this truth of that it was a sham, that, they, they, that her father had kind of lied to them that, in fact, they were just kind of going to spread humanity and not so much try to find something for everyone, you know? 
It, it felt quite convincing to me, actually. Yeah, I, I, I really did get the feeling that she wasn't in on the, um, on the lie. On the lie, yeah. Just, just maybe that she wasn't too su- surprised. I guess would be more the, the way I'd put it. So they, but yeah, so they're going to do this, this plan. And as yep. we always know, the the plan that they outline is always exactly the one they're going to do, and it always works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they go flying off, and they hit the gravity well, and they start boosting. They've got to have, they've got Tars in the uh, Ranger. Yeah, and, I think so. And Coop in the other one. Yeah, and, and they're, they're slingshot manually around. thrusting. This good old slingshot move. It's used a lot, isn't it? Sorry, in sci-fi. Uh, it's it's a. It's a beloved maneuver. It, must it works be particularly well believe. with rotating yeah. black holes. I'm, um, I've, I've kind of not kept watching it completely, but the comedy show Avenue Five, it's a science fiction show about a crew, like it's basically like a cruise ship, but in space that, you know, things go horribly wrong and they get stuck in space because they miss the turn off. Um, you know, the the crews should go for a couple of months in space and they. They stuff it up and it's going to go for years now. And, that, and that's one of, one of the episodes they talk about this. They're like, oh, we'll just do a slingshot around Saturn's moon or something like that and get the cruise ship back to Earth. Um, and, of course, it fails. <laughs> it's just I always think about that. Like so in this movie when they said slingshot, I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't think it's going, I think it's going to work. <laughs> one thing I like about this slingshot maneuver they do, though, is that nice bit of foreshadowing that we saw at the start where they launched from their rocket. Yeah. And it was a three-stage rocket, so the first stage disappeared off the back. Yep. And then the second stage dropped off. And so in this one here, they're, they're firing their rockets to yeah. sort of yeah. keep out. And then uh, Tars' ship runs out of fuel and says, well, off I go. And he, like, he ejects, yeah. and we see his ship fall away oh, backwards. Uh, yeah. I liked that too, I must admit, yeah. And then, of course, when Coops runs out of fuel... And then he says, well, you know, Newton's third law, to go forward, you've got to leave something behind. And he pulls it and flies back. And that's, yeah, I, I sort of noticed, uh, I noticed the, um, what is it, symmetry. Was that this, um, indeed, moving forward, they're leaving stuff behind. And, and so he falls backwards into the black hole. Yeah. Which, uh, one thing I noticed, that was about the 30 minutes left of the film. Yeah. Half an hour left. And you're thinking, well, well, geez, he's just dropped into a black hole. I don't know how they're going to feel half an hour now of him falling into a black hole. Yeah. But they manage it because we, this is where we get the next 2001 sort of well and truly, thing yeah. happening. Where he, he goes into this, because we're entering fantasy space at this point where you pass through a uh, you know the event horizon, which yep. you know, they, they say would, would work because it's, was rotating fast enough or something rather funny. Uh, yeah, they, so, they kind of had the, the science behind that as if like you went fast enough along the line, you would bypass that bit. I, I mean, I'll, again, I'm happy to go with this, people. Just tell me some yeah. science. I'm okay. I'm all right with it. I'm not like, sorry, I'm okay. Just, just yeah, sort of see, spill. I, just, I, I don't, I don't entirely understand. I don't need to know the why it going faster would work. I would have thought going slower, but anyway, no, it's, doesn't bother me. it's not really the point. The point is that, it would be theoretically possible. And it makes a lot of sense because the, you know, hyper-intelligent multidimensional beings that set this whole situation up, yeah, they, they knew that this was what was going to have to happen. That's so right. So they would have, maybe they 
had some way of of creating a little tunnel through the event horizon to allow him to fall through safely. It, it's it's sort of unimportant at this yeah. point because through it he goes and he ejects because his anyway. spaceship is screwing up mm. and he falls into this really interesting uh, grid, yeah, three dimensional sort of grid structure which. At first, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but then he, he goes up to it and you realize it's the bookshelf. Yeah. And he, so he's somehow um, getting this representation and Tars explains it, which is good because up until that point, I'm sort of looking and going, how is this? He's in the bookshelf? What? But then Tars, he says, no, actually, this, this is a, uh, a three-dimensional representation of you know four-dimensional space. Yeah. It's been constructed so that you can make sense of what's going on they can't pinpoint or interact through the time because they're these multi-dimensional beings yeah they, they don't have the um the sensory capabilities but and and this is the revelation that cooper has is that oh you know i'm the interface i'm the message or the messenger i'm the one uh who's going to do this and so he he sees his daughter he has a bit of an emotional journey as he goes through time and and tries to convince himself to stay and then finally uh he he gets frustrated and he realizes that he's not the one he's not the message it's his daughter who is the whole point of all of this yeah there's a there's a really magic there's a magical moment there isn't there of him like which, which I quite like, like because it, it's a father. It, again, it's like a father theme of... Because earlier in the film, he says it as well, where his, his dead wife had said to him, you're not... You're, oh, what's the word? He says, you're not there. You, you, were the, you will be there for your kids. You will be your kids' memory. Yeah, so, you're not so, their future. To me, as a writer, like, I'm, there just, to make I'm just going to segment this a little bit to writing. Like, there's a really magical moment in this film in that in that moment because film or story, we follow the protagonist. This film, the protagonist is Cooper, but in that moment, which is quite symbolic of this whole like three dimensional time warping, you know, like gravity doesn't exist, whatever the fuck we want to talk about, but <laughs> there's a there's a magical it's almost like they're breaking the story telling rule because in that moment for Cooper he still has to do things to solve the story but it's almost like he's saying he's actually realizing I'm not the hero of this story my daughter is the hero mm. so he's he's passing the torch on his guy yeah. okay I've I'm not actually yeah supposed to be solving anything no. here. I'm just supposed to yeah, equip my child with the yeah. tools to move into the future, which what? is, like I said, it sort of gives you a bit of goosebumps as a, as a parent where you sort of think, uh, just the number of times I've, I've thought back about an encounter I've had with my kids and I think, oh, what terrible scars have I just left? What, <laughs> There's scars what awful, every day from me for my kids, don't you worry? Oh, my God, what awful day. you know habits or yeah. attitudes have I just imprinted on them? Because they just look at you and they just go... <sighs> But anyway, so he's he's in the in the bookshelf there, and uh, I guess it sort of does he does imprint because he wants himself to stay. As he taps out the stay, and he kind of imprints his urgency to stay on Murph, 
wanting him to stay, and that's why she's a bit upset. Anyway, finally he goes the uh, watch. The watch is is just going to be left on the bench on the bookshelf, and he'll encode Morse code the answer that uh, Tars is detecting. We don't know what the answer is, but there's information that Tars is Yeah, it's just the pure information of being through the black hole, isn't it? It's the answer to the the gravity situation. And that is that nice bit there where uh, it says, how do you know that the watch is going to be there? How How do you know she's going to pick it up or whatever? And he says, I know because I gave it to her. Yeah. And sure enough, she comes back and picks up the watch and sees the the, the hands ticking and, and runs downstairs. And, yeah. and there's this confrontation with her brother. Her brother had been really grumpy about them. And he was clearly very disillusioned with the entire situation. And instead of having this fight, she just runs up and hugs him and says, yeah, look, it's, it's all okay. It's you always know? been dad, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Dad, dad's always been with us. It's, uh, it's going to be good. Yeah. And yeah, and we get old dad, he's up there and he goes, yes, I, I feel satisfied that I've done that. And he sort of sits there and Taz says, oh, well, they're, um, they seem to think you've done what is needed. They're dismantling the Tesseract. Yeah. Uh, and I love, I want to be able to have, I'm going to put that word somewhere in something I write one day. It's like the Tesseract. It's just Tesseract. Sort of, um, And it's cool visually, fun. isn't it? Because it's like, I mean, I wrote, when I, when I was, again, this is the first, I've just watched it once for this tonight and I haven't seen it before, but it was cool because he'd, he'd completed that and you're right, Tars is saying that and and it starts, I mean, I'd wrote, written down, like it's like he's falling at the start of this whole sequence, it's like he's falling down an ele- elevator chute and, of course, then he stops and then it's the, realises it's the bookcase and there's that moment that he kind of, when he's realising, we just talked about, I'm not the hero, I have to impart just information for my daughter who's the real hero and so it's like he kind of swims through all the rooms like he's kind of swim but i loved this when the world you know like at the top of this grid elevator shoot thing that he's in it it just starts folding in on itself and it's like getting brighter and brighter because it's collapsing uh in on itself towards his uh, spacesuit and you, you, there's a beautiful shot there where it's just the reflection of his spacesuit you know the mask over his face and he's quite content and you can just see the reflection of you can just see the reflection of that moment folding in on itself and I mean you think well he might just be dead after this because again we have no idea how anyone survives going through a wormhole or anything well, this is this is the proof of uh, Brand's theory of uh, the love and connection, as opposed to man's theory of continuous survival instinct. Mm. Because he's facing his death, and yes, he's thinking of his uh, children, but he's not thinking of them that he's going to survive for them. He's thinking that he's done the right thing by them. Yeah, which is uh, a different. You know, it's not he's lost that desperation. Yes. Yeah. Reach some sort of level of acceptance. Yeah, contentment over luckily, it. Yeah. And I do like the ending of this movie that he gets picked up by the spaceships at the end. Yeah, so he's taken floating in. in space, isn't he, after this experience? And yeah, he gets picked I mean, it, up. Because it would have been easy enough just to end the movie there. 
and I, I think they, they could have done that as an alternate ending. But I do like, I do like the uh, the, the bow being tied on this one. Where mm. he's, he's picked up and he wakes up, and first thing he sees when he walks over, he sees a baseball game. And again, they're not skilled professional players, but this time it hits the ball and it shoots up and smashes the window. Like, and they're all like on about it. And we and we see that yeah, he's he's in some sort of big cylindrical space station. And this person takes him like a tour guide back to his house, but it's it's and it's back to those documentary videos all through it. So it's, it's his house is a is a museum, really, isn't it? Yeah, I, and, I like also that thing. It's uh, Cooper Station. Yeah, is oh, you named it after me? No, no, sorry, sorry. We named it after your daughter. <laughs> She's the one who saved the world. She's the important one, not you. Yeah, because of course, as, as far as anyone on Earth knows, except for her, the, he just flew off and never came, and just reappeared 124 years later, or whatever yeah. it is, uh, 80, 80 years later, or something. Um, yeah. So yeah, as far as anyone's concerned, he's not done anything. But yeah, it's really nice. He, he meets up with Murph, finally gets to see her, catch up with her, and yeah, and you do get the feeling that she did have a full life. She wasn't left. Um, no, which you know, she's kind of dying, sad. and they do say she shouldn't be here. But when she heard that they'd found him, she had to come. Um, well, she'd and be then, like ninety something years yeah, old. Yeah, she's she? in a bed and she's not doing well. But her family surrounds her, and it's children and grandchildren, and you know, aunties. You know, it's a massive amount of people. Um, and he kind of walks in, and they have a moment. Um, but she actually tells him, you know, you don't. You know, he goes. She says to him, "There's nothing." A parent should never see a child die, which is a very cliche move. So she actually says to him, you don't have to watch me die. I've got all my children here. They can watch me die, basically. Yeah. And so he yeah. leaves. He says, like, she kind of gives him permission. Yeah, what, he says, what am I going to do? And it's like, well, Brand. Go yeah, Brand. what about Brand, you know? So, yeah, so he does. And that's really nice. He goes off, he fixes Tars up, because Tars is a pretty cool character. Yeah. I, I liked him. It's, and yeah, there's... The shape and the way he moved kind of really grew on me. When yeah. I first saw him, I thought, he looks quite sort of awkward and yeah. 1960s-esque. No, by that but then, end, you know, it's like, you know, they're just hopping in. They're hopping in a very Top Gun plane at the end, aren't they? <laughs> it's a very, like, yeah, it does. It's, slick it's very plane sleek ride. It's not just a, you know, a NASA shuttle. It's a very kind of slick thing that they're hopping in. And, and Tars in particular, he hops in flat, but then he, like, hovers you know a couple of beams up that makes him a bit more human i think you know like it kind of yeah. gives him a bit more personality and that and they rush off and there we, we cut to brand who's found you know made a little tombstone for her um partner husband boyfriend i don't know what their relationship was yeah and yeah she's starting to set stuff up and i i sort of found that funny as no one else thought to go check on her no. So he's appeared back out of this wormhole alive. Yeah. They didn't think, oh, I wonder if, you know, this hundred years or whatever that's passed, we never once thought to <laughs> go through and have a look. Yeah. Yeah. So, but anyway, off, off he goes. So he, he's going to go off. And uh, I don't know what time he is relative to her, though, because he went through the, the, the black hole and then the wormhole. But anyway, I. I guess. Yeah, it, it maybe, ends there, maybe even what nice. you're saying there, like, are they are they on the same time 
line. I, I didn't even think about this actually when I finished the movie last night. Did are, the, are they on the same as brand and like like what you're just saying that the fact that maybe uh, another so his daughter has solved the equation. Uh, you know, at the age of in her thirties, fifty years has gone past. So now they're on this station, Cooper. Yeah, like, have they are they still on the same time, or is he? So he hasn't aged, but he is one hundred and twenty-four years old, or whatever. I think I think the impression that you get is that they're going to be at the same. Age, Him and Brand are going to be at a similar, the same age. Yeah, so, but yeah, that's what I'm just saying. So that idea of like no one's thought to go through the wormhole to get are they? Is that because of that kind of? Oh, I don't know. That now is confusing me. <laughs> Who, knows? Who knows? Hang on, hang on a minute. Hang on, slow down. Sorry, slow down. <laughs> but and, I, I did, yeah. I did like that ending. Often, uh, it can be overdone, like having this sort of happy style ending but i i think it was nice and i i felt satisfied by it yeah uh, I, mean, it, I mean it's a happy it, enough ending because it's it's like he he most likely gets to brand and then not that they necessarily had a relationship but maybe in this new world but he, he's, he always wants to be the pioneer the explorer yeah, yeah. you know uh he he wants to f- break new ground and and sitting because I think he makes that comment to Tars or someone or other when he's sitting on his reconstructed yeah you know, ranch having a sip of beer. You're like, I'm just yeah. I, I can't remember what he says. There's something along those. I'm not just going to sit here doing nothing, going well, back he, like it was yeah was I think before. He's, he says something like, "I never thought I never put much weight into." looking into the past or whatever, because they've reconstructed his past, haven't they? A museum, they've reconstructed his house and everything, and now they're like, oh, you've come back, you can just live in your old house. He's like, I'm never, this doesn't really do it for me. I'm not really interested in the past. I'm only interested in the future. And I think that's why when he does get back to Murph in the next scene and she's kind of like, I love you, Dad. Like I've always, you know, we've. This is important that we've reconnected. But you don't need to hang here. You can live your kind of future. You know. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so that's good. I do, I do like this little this ending. That it was a nice ending. But that's so that's the wrap up of the movie. Yeah, and that's we've done pretty Where well there, sorry, because you... it is a three hour movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a there's a lot of we we skip through a, a fair number of parts there with little flurries uh, what about some sort of a ladder positioning yeah because well, you were saying before we started recording this that you're tossing up you weren't sure if this was like a, a really uh, a, a sort of a great and significant movie or if it was merely you know a competent and well-made science fiction movie which, yeah you know and i can i can see where that comes from uh what what were your thoughts about that like what are your thoughts about that yeah, I, look, I think in terms of the ladder specifically, this does need to come in kind of like about number four on my ladder. You know, like it, it needs to come in high because from a filmic point of view, from a story point of view, it, it's very well done. You know, like there's a lot that is very, very good in this movie. Um, and it does, I think, tick a lot of the you know, it ticks a lot of the boxes that says this is a science fiction movie. 
this is going on. And it does, I mean, again, as a film person, um, I woke up this morning thinking about this movie. I couldn't, I couldn't like, I was debating in my mind whether I thought this, is this a really great movie or is this a, like just a really good, is this a really great movie or is this just like a really good science fiction movie? Like, is it, have they just done everything right? And to be yeah, honest, will it I still become can't a future completely... classic? Will people look back on this yeah. as being some sort of defining film, or will it just be, um, you know, a, another good Christopher Nolan film? Yeah, and I mean, I, 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 do, I mean, unfortunately, it is one of those things that we know he makes. Look, personally, he makes some great movies. I, I, I still go back to Memento. Like, I love Memento. You know, and that, that's I think that's his first feature film. Maybe second, I'm not too sure. Like he might have made a little kind of India version first, but Memento is just. Some people don't like Memento. I freaking love that movie. It's not science fiction all, but that that is such a clever movie. Him, Jonathan wrote that with him. They both wrote it um, the same as this film, and uh, it's based on a short film, and then based on a, and then they made the feature film. I love it, and that was his big introduction as well to you know, the US um, movie system and stuff. So, and then you go through like The Dark Knight is such, I think The Dark Knight is such a good film. Um, Inception. Oh, yeah, that one, that one was great. It was, a, it was a really, I think it was a really well um, delivered dynamic yeah. between the the good guy and the bad guy. Mm. And it, it, it made, it made the Joker make sense to me. Like, yeah. Previous Batman films with the Joker, it's it still seemed a bit too comic book. Yeah. Uh, in that, you know, there's just kind of that that childish, oh, well, he's mad. You know, and you go, well, yeah. that doesn't matter. Whereas The Dark Knight, he was just crazy, but it, it said that uh, he had a philosophy yeah. to his madness. He wasn't but just a, a criminal for the sake of being a criminal. He He was trying to teach the world to be yeah, better. And especially especially Batman. Like he, he's basically yeah. there as the um that perfect you know, again you talk about writing and stuff, like he's that perfect example of the antithesis, you know, like the opposite of Batman. You know, like so in the Dark Knight the Joker is just you know, like that's what he even says to him in that the cli- well, I don't want to spoil it, but in the climax climax of that movie is kind of the Joker is saying to Batman, you know, murder me because then you are me. You know, like it's like, hmm. kill me, like ruthlessly kill me because you can. You are so much more stronger and powerful than me. I am rubbing you up the wrong way. But right now you have that choice to be the hero or to not be the hero. You can be like me, you know, and and and... That's extremely good. But, I mean, that whole Batman series that Nolan did, I think, are re- you know, it's the best Batman movies that are out there. Um, but, uh, and, you know, then you take something like Inception, Memento. These are really great films. And Interstellar, like, I'd never seen it and I'd always wanted to see it. And uh, it stuck with me, you know, like it's... I watched it last night, so it's almost 20... It's 24 hours later. And I know we're talking about it, but... All day I've kind of thought about it. And that's that's a really good thing. You know, as someone that wants to be a filmmaker, that's what I want people to do with my films long term is I, I want them to walk away and think about my movies the next day, the day after, 
a week later. You know, you don't just want to be a flash in the pan. You want to, you want people thinking about your stuff, don't you? So whether this, I, I can't quite put my finger on whether I think this movie is like going to be a classic in a hundred years, but you know, like 2001, you know, 50 years later, it's still a classic. Like you, you've got to sit down and you still watch 2001 and there's so much good about it. You and I talked about with 2001 was, did, did people think that at the time? And so that's always a good question, isn't it? Like in Interstellar, will our kids grow up and go, I wonder what it was like when Interstellar came out at the movies, you know? <laughs> like, yeah, will it know. be like that? Or is it just going to be... Christopher Nolan's sci-fi movie or is it just going to be like, oh, it was a really good sci-fi, but, you know, not the classic that we're talking about. But but in terms of how much, you know, the good things in it, I mean, filmic-wise, story-wise, um, it's an extremely enjoyable movie. So I, on the ladder, I'm going to put it in there on my fourth rung, I think. Yeah, well, I'm going to go in a bit lower down that because I've, I was looking at the top four there where I've got... Um, so, you know, I was thinking, uh, so I'm, I've gone down at number eight yeah, and it's possible, like I said, like it could grow me. I, I had that same feeling that it's, it's, it's really competent storytelling moments in there. Like the way the opening scene starts and I, and I don't think I've seen a movie done quite as well. There's this sort of, um. Saving Private Ryan kind of starts with that documentary sort of feel, yeah, with the old people remembering and then going in. But I think this one it just kind of it mixed in enough sort of features, and he, he did it twice. So he did it there, whereas the documentary lead then becomes a film, and then he did it where the message from Murph becomes Murph back on Earth doing yeah. her thing, Murph on Earth, as they say. Murph on uh, Earth. So yeah. like, and like that was really well done there's some really nice sort of symmetry and uh foreshadowing uh what do you call it i, I learned a new term semiotic isotopy oh it's just the I lie. yeah yeah it's a pretty good one it's <laughs> it's a kind of like uh foreshadowing but it's a symmetry of meaning but with slightly different language usage with using so, symbols yeah using so symbols, it's like yeah. the the launch sequence leaving earth dropping stuff off at earth then the sequence where they're trying to um escape the black hole but they're having to sacrifice things to the black hole so yeah. it's similar it's not quite foreshadowing yeah but you've got this similar meaning happening yeah but with yeah a different and they, they do film. say don't they 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 kind of mention that quote a couple of times like the only way to go forward is to leave something behind yeah, so it's quite a nice, like, it's just those sorts of features really, you know, that does show a lot of forethought and skill. Like, it's hard to incorporate such nice balance in a story, you know, because you've got to think of it, for starters. Yeah. And there's so many things to think of when you're, coming, when you're doing story and plot, trying to make this scene play off against this scene and have this theme running through it all, but not trying to make it like you're being punched in the face with it. Yeah, obvious. And yeah, yeah, there's so much sort of going on that if you can actually pull some of this stuff off like he has in Interstellar, it it shows a definite skill. And 
and that in itself is quite impressive i think so but um i think maybe because, i also get the feeling that i've kind of seen and it, and it could just be because we have watched a lot of sci-fi yeah end to end now but you know i've sort of seen parts of this in 2001 i've seen parts of it in um the beyond and uh yeah like passengers even with a sleeping and, and time shift and type stuff you know like so i sort of feel as if maybe if i hadn't watched all of those other movies this would be higher on my ladder mm. but because i've seen all these other movies first it's sort of like it's a really competently done story using many of the elements of many other science fiction so does that mean like you said is it's does that is that make it great or does that just make it just a, a a very well done science fiction film as opposed to a truly great one. I don't, yeah. I don't know, but there you go. Eight. It is mm-hmm. just sort of, um, and, and that's, yeah, that might shift, uh, after we watch a couple more movies, I might shift that along. I, d- I did find that myself, that, 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 that perfect point you're saying that I'm not, I'm a little unsure because you and I have watched specifically, certain science fiction films for space brains and i'm unsure whether other people would have that same experience you know and i'm sure a lot of people went out there and watched this film because it was christopher nolan you know coming off the the batman series coming off inception very popular successful hollywood films you know he built a name for himself and you know even even for this particular example you know, if you if you Google this, um, his brother suggested him, and they nego- he negotiated his director's fee, and apparently it was twenty million dollars, or twenty percent of the gross of the film. Now the film ended up making six hundred and fifty million plus. Um, so, you know, this is a guy that is super competent, super intelligent, knows filmmaking. You know, he, he's made he's blazed his way through you know, coming from England and British cinema into the American, you know, Hollywood system, you know, he's dictating his own path basically. And to make a science fiction film like that, that's extremely popular, big box office success. Uh, and I just wonder that then therefore the the general population that maybe, you know, they, they watch a couple of science fiction films in a year, but they don't watch science fiction, science fiction like you and I do. I, it just felt like some of the moments in this film did uh, repeat things that we've seen in other science fiction films. That's not necessarily mm. a bad thing because that's the genre, you know, that, that is, you have to have those moments. But am I seeing anything super different to other films? No. But am I seeing it done really well? Yes. So, so that's where there's, in my mind, it's a real struggle to kind of say, oh, is this really outstanding or is it just, been done really well but i've seen it before you know like it's a bizarre question isn't it i've, I've never really thought of it like that yeah it's yeah, a strange question to ask is it just really well done or is it extraordinarily done yeah, yeah i don't know <laughs> and we can't put our finger on it so there you go let us know what you think are you one of these people that you've just stumbled across space brains and you're like interstellar is the best what are these guys talking about let us know or yeah, you've been following along. I know a couple of you listeners out there personally have reached out to me and you're following every damn movie that we are doing. Like, what do you think? Did you have the same experience? You know, did you watch The Beyond? Did you watch Passengers? 
you know, did you watch uh, even uh, After Earth, the Will Smith movie? You know, like some of those moments are in this film and especially, and we'll, I want to come back to this a little bit later. Uh, I know we've already been talking for a while here, but I want to get to 2001. Um, like we talked a lot about that. How does this film compare to those films? You know, let us know. Hit us up on the socials or the website. Uh, I'd love to know what your opinion is of that. So, sorry, we've talked about the yes. ladder there. What about the science? What do you want to pick on? Uh, the gravity question. The gravity question, of course. I you love, must be able to I answer I love it. gravity. And Who does the, sim- the simple reason for that is gr- gravity represents the, the failure of all of our fantastic scientific, you know, astrophysical and cosmological knowledge. Gravity is the one thing more than anything else that says you've got it wrong. And this is why I think they must have been talking about when in this movie they're talking about the problem of gravity. And mm. so in a nutshell, you've got quantum theory yeah. and general relativity. General relativity is Einstein. Okay. So he took a lot of stuff that Newton and that lot were doing and he came forward and made it a little bit richer and brought it down to... Um, deal with atoms and photons and and stuff. So he was looking at there's some what are the fundamental forces in the world and how do they interact and how do they relate. Okay. So he's he worked in with he's not the only person he worked in with a bunch of other very smart people around the turn of the 20th century. 1912 he put for he published his um, theory of general relativity and Mm -hmm. we know this from the important. Uh, equation that E equals MC squared, which relates the speed of light to matter and energy and the way they're all sort of interrelated. And and by having the speed of light, that brings into play time. And speed, you've also then got um, movement through space. So he's talking about the fact that space, time, energy, and matter are all related. And when you're looking at gravity under this model what you're talking about is space time which is you know height width breadth and uh, you know that's your three dimensions and then you've got time which is your fourth dimension forms a continuous uh, field of existence within which matter and energy operate and when you get energy which as we know because energy is equal to mass times the speed of light energy and matter are in many ways, um, similar in this field. When it moves through space-time, it distorts it. So mm-hmm. the more energy you have, and you know, the more mass, the more it distorts. Right. And this is where you get, like, planets will have gravity. So this distortion of space-time, because uh, you have such things as, like, the speed of light is constant, you get these um, an emergent effect. You You basically get things will move in towards one another. Uh, it's gravity. And so general relativity is, is about continuous space. There's no um, division. You can think of it as, as like a smooth plane, and people always talk about the, the old rubber sheet with weights on it representing space-time being and, and the way it, gravity could be represented. But 
quantum mechanics deals with the very small, smallest things. So we're talking about electrons and protons and neutrons and the quarks which make those things. And it's not a continuous system. So its fields are divisible down to quanta, which are the smallest units. And the one that we're all familiar with is the photon. The photon is like the indivisible unit of energy that transfers electromagnetic force. So when you've got an atom, you've got an electron spinning around it, and you heat it up, you add some energy into it, the electron will move out a shell, if you remember your chemistry and so on. Okay. It'll move up a level, and when it cools down, it'll drop down a level, and it will release a photon, which is a bit of light. So the colors you see, for example, are atoms absorbing uh, electrons and then giving them back off again. And that absorption and, and release is done on a photon level, which means you can't, which is, which is the quanta of uh, electromagnetic force. So you can't, can't divide that down into a smooth um, continuum. It's either, either you've got it or you don't. And so the electron is either at one level or at a higher level. And when it hits, when it hits, when it gets hit by a photon, it'll jump discontinuously by the amount of the photon. General relativity would say that it should travel through space-time doing that. But right. quantum mechanics, all the mathematics and the observations and measurements I've done of that show that that's not the case. So you, you immediately now have this conflict between general relativity, which says space-time is this smooth, continuous um, membrane which permeates everything, and then quantum mechanics which says, well, no, because when an electron is hit by a photon, it jumps. Uh, without, you know, without concern for moving smoothly through space, time. Why this is important then to gravity is that that must mean then that gravity affects particles with mass. But at the quantum level, it kind of doesn't because gravity doesn't operate in quanta, as it were. If there's no photon equivalent for gravi gravity. There's no graviton. But we do have a Higgs boson, which is the quanta for mass, but nothing for gravity. Right. And gravity is also orders of magnitude weaker than what it would do if you were to say it did have a quanta and it worked under quantum mechanics. So gravity is the problem, is that you cannot have gravity operating in the general relativity and gravity operating in quantum. Right. They, it's incompatible. Like, your, your mathematical equations fall apart. They fail. And why this is important for black holes, as in this movie, is because a black hole singularity is where space-time is compressed due to gravity down to... or due to mass, I should say, which produces gravity down to uh, below the Planck length. So the Planck length is the smallest measurement you can make. If you try to go smaller than that, the amount of energy required to measure, you know, to, to, to create a, um, a measurement particle, like a photon. So you want to shine a beam on a light at something so you can look at it. 
the amount of energy you've got to put into it basically means you're going to end up with a black hole. Yeah, right. So you, you, you can't get it. So it's hidden. As soon as you get to uh, the wavelength required to actually examine something accurately, you can no longer examine it. So inside this black hole where you've got space-time collapsing down to an infinitesimal point, down to the quantum level, you've now got gravity and space-time trying to operate at quantum level, which we don't have any way of understanding how that can possibly happen. There's lots of different sort of weird theories. There's string theory and there's you know um, multiple universe theories and there's, there's a number of other sort of 17-dimensional uh, theories and so forth which are trying to come up with ways. But just like it says in this movie, ultimately what's happening inside the singularity is the answer to what gravity actually is. Now, I don't know how that helps them fly a spaceship, but but certainly that is, gravity is, is one of the most fascinating things because it's not as powerful as it should be. Like the other three forces, the electromagnetic force is, you know, um, you know solar radiation and, and magnetic fields and so forth. And you've got the weak magnetic force, uh, sorry, weak atomic force, which holds atoms together and the strong nuclear force which holds neutrons and protons and stuff together uh they're way way stronger than gravity just by the fact that um the sun is hugely massive and has a lot of gravity yeah yeah but light still it just escapes from it and flies away it takes you know a collapsed neutron star black hole to stop light from escaping but even then, Hawking radiation is escaping. So gravity should be a lot stronger than it actually is. So wh where is the rest of gravity? And what actually is it? What is it? You know, like, so, so it is a, an absolutely fascinating thing, particularly because we're standing here on Earth and we are under the effect of gravity all the time. And so we kind of think that we know about it. But it doesn't it doesn't compute when you start dealing with high energy levels or very small spaces and that is that and i don't pretend to really understand all of that too well but every time i get an opportunity to read a new article about it or or watch there's some really nice videos on youtube talking about it then um I take that opportunity because you can bet that's where the next major physics breakthrough is going to be, is the gravity problem. Definitely. Again, I don't know how that's going to help us fly a spaceship, but it could. It could. It, it could. Uh, you never know. You might be able to fire some lasers at a particular exotic particle in a certain way and create manufacture gravity waves or something I don't mm. know I think so why not why, why not well there's no particular reason no uh, I don't think so give it a go you know, we don't have enough uh, energy I guess at the moment but we will do but anyway, there we go. So Interstellar, they, they dropped into this huge black hole 
and managed to, you know, Tars was able to uh, record and measure this answer, which could be encoded as Morse code, apparently, whatever that means. Yeah, definitely. But so you want to talk about the 2001-ness of this yeah, well, movie. I, I want to wrap that into, um, and I'm conscious that we're, we're talking and talking, but I, I do want to wrap that into the sort of technicalities part. I mean, so technicalities, talking about filmmaking, sound, lighting, colour, symbols, editing. I mean, we're, we've touched a bit on a few things, but I, w- I want to kind of recapture or come back around to a, a couple of parts. Um and I mean, the first thing is thinking about, I mean, I, I, again, I think that's probably why I'm thinking about, is this a great film or is it just a good film or is this sort of something that's going to be iconic in the long term? Um, I, I'm, 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 and I'm unsure, sorry, to be honest. I can't quite put my finger on it. But I will say as someone, and look, go back, listen to our Space Brains episode about 2001. I've always been a big fan of 2001 by Stanley Kubrick. Uh, this film, I mean, there's a few things you can go- you can Google this, and it's actually a common Google search. So I'm not the only one thinking about it. But there is so much about this film, you know, the story. Uh, then we can break it down into some of the, some of the some of the cinematography you mentioned before, the docking, you know, the docking moments between the shuttle and the station, um, and it happens a couple of times in this film. Even the sound when they dock is kind of a bit of a symphony that's going on. There's also the uh, the, the the fourth dimension going through the black hole, um, and I, I suppose I could kind of you can almost almost summarize the whole narrative of this film. Like, is it a prequel of two thousand and one, or is it just a homage of two thousand and one? And I know Nolan has said you can't really make a space movie without it being somehow connected to 2001. And I understand what he's saying, but to me it almost... I mean, I can see so much of this film, like, yeah, connecting to 2001. However, I think he really does take... You know, if you if you are someone that believes he's pretty much made a prequel of 2001 or like an extension of 2001 is another way, I suppose, of thinking about it. Um, He's kind of done a much more uh, standard narrative version of it. So if you remember in 2001, you know, we have things like starting with the Dawner Man, fast-forwarding for future. We have the killer robot, HAL 9000. We have the spacemen going out and experiencing possibly a black hole um whereas and we, we have no freaking idea really what happens to him because at the end of 2001 we suddenly sorry spoiler 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 but suddenly in 2001 so please stop but in 2001 we you know he goes through the black hole and he awakens if you remember in that kind of old european styled apartment and it's it, it, the feeling is someone else is there, but it's kind of him jumping through the rest of his life, isn't it? Like in ten or twenty year increments, and then when he ends up, you presumably dying. Suddenly, there's this massive fetus 
human fetus over Earth, isn't isn't there? Isn't it? And that's the end of the movie. So it does. Two thousand and one asks you so many more questions than Interstellar does. Like Interstellar answers all of those questions. It doesn't leave you wondering um, in that way. Where it left me wondering is like kind of going, oh, is this a great film? Is it a good film? Wow, he did some really cool things. Yeah, it's connected to, I can see so many connections to 2001. You know, is this actually very different to the other science fiction films we looked at? No, but then it's done really well. He's explained well, some, things. Some of the special effects technology borrowed. Yeah. Uh, or re-envisaged from 2001. They're definitely re-envisited, yeah. Some of it was... Because uh, in 2001, it was, was the first usage of that back projection. Yeah. So rather than just being green screening, the actors would act against a back projection. Yeah. Uh, which was then masked. And, and this one here, they did the a lot of the scenes, they did the computer generation and yeah. then used that similar thing. So it was computer-generated imagery they were acting against, but they could they could see it on the they wall behind them, basically. So- yeah, it's possibly acting. more realistic for the actors, yeah. I, I don't know. So, But to me, there's so many, you know, like um, you've also even in two, in 2001, you've got the killer robot, Hal 9000. Sorry, getting a bit tired. Uh, Hal 9000. But then you've also in in um, Interstellar, you've got Tars, who's like then a helpful robot, you know. like So it's the opposite. Um yeah, so it has I don't a know. similar this... aesthetic. Has that same sort of sixties. Yeah, but I've got to say, like, you, and you and I have talked about this. Like in two thousand and one, there's a five minute docking of the state of the of the space shuttle. You know, docking into the space station. Nolan doesn't do anything like that because I think you would just turn off the modern day audience. But when there's that clamping scene early in the film where they, yeah, they first get to the space station, there's that. definitely an emphasis of the clamping moment. And then later in the film, when Dr. Mann, Matt Damon, is trying to do it. I mean, how many times do we see the shot, the clamps are trying to jump on, but they don't join? And there was, and then it even moves a bit and it comes back, doesn't it? Like, there's definitely emphasis of that, whereas we've seen other modern-day films they kind of bypass that bit. Even if it's a tense, tense moment, they bypass showing us too much of that. So I think there's definitely a connection there. Um, uh, yeah, uh, but, but the other thing, so I think 2001, he's paying a lot of homage to it uh, or he's taken a lot of inspiration, which I don't blame him because, as I said, as a filmmaker myself, I think 2001 is... is sensational like it's really up there it blows your mind please listen to our podcast about that and and let us know what you think uh so that's one thing the second thing i really want to pick on is like this film's really well made the soundtrack uh this is me nerding out i actually listened to a bit of hans zimmer and uh so i've even though i haven't seen this film i've i've heard hans zimmer's song which is played a fair bit in this film for interstellar he created it um, that is a beautiful song. I know there's a few memes out there about this song online, but it's a really beautiful soundtrack song that Hans has come up with, as Hans always does. Um, cinematography is spot on. You know, it's really well constructed. The overall narrative, which we've talked about, is very sensationally, 
you know, intertwined between this father and daughter. It's very primal, even though it's such a complex, you know, traveling through time, gravity is important. Will humanity survive? There's a twist that, in fact, you were sent out there and, in, and you never were just supposed to come back. Um, the fact that the story also progresses over the over her life um, is not it's not an easy thing to sell. You know, I don't think that's an easy thing to sell to mass audiences. Yet they succeeded in this version, um, and, and uh, you know, you know, it's a nice, tightly shot film. Um, even though it is very long, it's really well edited together. Like it's very concise. What I want to pick on a bit is the symbols and. You know, even the the opening shot of this film is a bookcase, so it's the bookcase. And I don't know if you remember, sorry, but it it goes for about maybe 10 to 20 seconds and it's a kind of a tracking shot along the bookcase. All those books are important to do with space or time travel, you know. And so, again, there's Nolan giving the audience a little opportunity to think about that. But even in that shot, he tracks from a bit of a futuristic looking space shuttle to the very traditional NASA space shuttle. And on top of that, there's like this grainy dust filtering over the top of it. So, you know, like far out in the first 15 to 20 second shot, and then it says interstellar and it cuts to the documentary. So like, very quickly, he's given us a very visual symbol of the film. Um, as I said, like other signs in the film that, you know, is that we have the robot TARS. Well, TARS is, if you just reorder that, that star, you know, like it's it's obvious that the robot's supposed to be helpful. It's a helpful robot in the stars. Um, there's also the fact that um, he... Uh, he's um, I'm just oh, I've just drawn a little blank on another symbol, but um, the fact the fact uh, that Doctor Man, so Matt Damon, is kind of a sign that oh he's a symbol of hope when in fact he's in reality he's not hopeful. He's he's about survivalists and you're gonna you're gonna work your way through it. Um, you you're not necessarily just relying on hope you have to survive in the harshest of conditions. Um, there's the the poem that Michael Caine's character keeps stating. And so on one side, it's, you know, it's about going into the dark, exploring the dark, you know, humanity going into the night. But then the fact, the way that Nolan uses it in the film is we have a motive happening. So we have we have him saying it and then we cut. So he keeps talking as a voiceover and we cut to the scene that we want. And that happens three times in the film that because it goes from he does it twice and then Murph does it once. So, you know, as a technique, it's like constantly telling us that message, you know, over and over again. Um, also, even Cooper, uh, he he symbolizes this idea of, you know, stretching ourselves that you don't exist in the in the one time frame that you exist in the past, the present, and the future as humanity. Like we're always evolving. That's what humans do. That's why we're the top of the food chain. I I personally think like 
we're constantly thinking and evolving and changing and moving and you know the way that humans have gotten to the humans that you and I are is that we killed off all the past the the old version of humans you know and that just tells you something about the way humans work I don't mean we go out and murder people but we're constantly evolving we're constantly changing we're constantly pushing the barrier um, and again even this whole coronavirus like you wouldn't have thought that this is how we would react to it and we have reacted like this and we've we've done a very interesting thing to try to save ourselves really save the species so um yeah interstellar to me like it's a you know there were so many moments and there's other moments in the film even just very small moments that the symbols are there you know the guys on the porch drinking the beer um the fact that he's got the pickup truck um the way he is with murph when she's a little girl um, the books on the bookshelf spelling out a word like there's there's symbols within the story that are very obvious and there's symbols that are a bit deeper and I mean it takes me back to film school we used to look at these films and you kind of these classic films and you go oh the signs and the symbols and you know looking for things like that and in fact this film has got them embedded in them and that's always a really you know it's like a little treasure hunt for people that like film and again I think it makes the film really good so that's something that I really wanted to pick on with the technicalities is the, um, yeah, the 2001 connection and also the symbols in particular. What did you think? Yeah, I sort of, I guess what I was sort of saying there earlier about the, the way um, we've gone from documentary into film and from yeah. message into the the story that's happening on Earth, and as you said, these these symbols, these things are really quite difficult to do and to do well. You know, I've, I've certainly had my efforts where I'm planning what I'm writing. I go, okay, I've got to remember that this is going to be the case and, I, and I've got to remember that the I want the weather to almost be the opposite of what the emotional tone of this chapter is going to be. So I want, you know, the weather is going to be hot and dry and the emotional tone is going to be sort of sad and dreary, and or it's a wet thunderstorm. It's going to be you know a, a hot, happy, passionate sort of moment. It's really hard to get that, uh, you know, squeeze it in to remember it and and to do it so you're not just sort of you know punching someone in the face with symbology or yeah. with uh, you know flashbacks or or foreshadowing. You know, yeah, and. I'm always impressed when I watch a movie and you sort of, you know that it's done well when it's kind of more like you're looking back, you see something happen, you go, oh, hang on. And you, and you think back to some earlier point in the film and you go, was that, was that connection there? Is it yeah. something I should, and then like a third thing will happen in the film, which makes up this, you know, um, almost like a, a, a background story, a sub story that's happening. And it might even just be, uh, the substory of the the way the dust storms increase yeah. uh, at the same time as the relationship between father and daughter mm. changes. You know, well, you know, those sorts of things that you don't, if it's done right, you're not going, oh, this is so clearly a whatever. It's yeah, more the cases. Later on, you look back at previous things, you go, oh, hang on, I'm starting to see a, that pattern. You're, you, you're looking backwards on it and you go, oh, yeah, that's that's really good. Well, you feel 
you feel a, a, a bit, a bit more of a connection with the film and, and what's being told. Yeah, and it, actually, just everything you're saying there, and I didn't bring it up. I've just in my mind, I've just kind of seen it. It's like, it's like even the documentary footage of the old people talking about it, and so we we have them at the start, and we don't really understand what why we're seeing that as an audience, but it's given us exposition of where the story starts. But it's also then when we see it at the end, we realise that that's where it belongs in the time frame. Like it didn't belong at the start, it belongs at the end. So there's kind of a like, ah, oh, that's why we saw that footage. It was foreshadowing, you know, the end, the yeah, museum. Success. Then, so there's, a, there's an actual story connection there, isn't there? Like there's a story go, oh, okay, now we get it. But on top of that, when you think about the whole thing about Cooper... Cooper is basically saying at the end, and he says it even at the start. By you know, at the start, he's saying, "He's John Lithgow says, you don't. I feel sorry for you because you don't fit into this world, and you didn't fit into the previous world." And then at the end, forty years too soon. You're or forty, 40 years, years too, too soon, and forty years too late. And then at the end, when he is sitting on the porch, he's like, "I never really had a thing for looking back at the past." So it's like the mm. documentary, that's what documentaries are. They look at the past quite often, you know, like they're reflecting on the past. So there's a symbolism there, isn't there? You know, there's a symbolism of documentary reflecting on the past. It's used in the story to tell us stuff about the story. And he's literally sitting but in he, the recreation of his farmhouse <laughs> filled with documentaries yeah. playing about his past. So this it's... is what I mean, sorry about it. Oh, is this a really great movie? <laughs> or yeah, no, is it a good movie? You know, like oh, I, I think what we can agree it. on though is that uh, Christopher Nolan and uh, I guess his brother Jonathan yeah. who wrote this, they've they've done a great job of working in so many things. Like, and yeah, you know, the direction work was really good. There was some very interesting camera work. There was uh, the action scene on the water planet was very tense. Yeah, and the build up to man's betrayal felt reasoned because he, he had this monologue. Yeah, there was so much skill going into that. It's uh yeah, it's takes a lot of effort because I'm sure there's a lot of directors and, and writers who think of these things but you know the kind of forget to, or, or yeah. fail to put it in there and then they kinda of look and go, uh, it'll do. It'll have to do. Yeah. Because I'm not Sure, I've run out of time or energy or whatever, but he's managed to get it in there, mm. and uh, that's yeah, and that's that's something I could only ever, I guess I I can hope to be able to do that with my yeah, own work. I agree. Is to be able to not just because I can think of all sorts of symbols and ideas and um, you know this as I said the semiotic isotopy, that's that's the newest thing you got to think of now. Uh, <laughs> I can think of those, but then when you actually have your story and your plot and you're working you often forget or you think about how am i going to fit that in afterwards how do i where where do i make this symmetry where do i do these things and often you'll just sort of go like it's good enough as it is it's too hard yeah and in this movie and and a lot of these sort of great movies that we've looked at i was gonna gonna either taking the time or they put the effort in they've they've done it and it's quite good Definitely. And I was just going to say on that slightly and then we'll, we'll finish up, but it's like they also, there's a lot of scenes in this film that 
there is little surprises, I suppose, for the audience. So I'm just talking about the narrative now overall that, you know, like we, at the start, we're a little unsure, like the documentary thing. And then at the end, we realize, oh, that's where it belongs. So it's like a little, a little present for the audience for sticking with the story. But then, so what I also mean is like the story of Murph growing, it's kind of a nice surprise that the stuff she talked about as a child, like the ghost stuff, is actually the father stuff. The um, So there's kind of a nice surprise for sticking with the story. Um, also, like, the fact that Michael Caine's character, Professor Brand, it was a sham, you know? Like, so that was a nice surprise. And then again, as an audience, we learn that, but Cooper doesn't know that until he lands on the planet and then Brand gets that message, you know what I mean? There's a delay for him. So again, as an audience, we learn stuff before the characters. So the surprise is nice. Um, the fact that when Dr. Man takes Cooper out, I don't know about you, but I didn't expect that he was going to kill him, you know, that he wanted to try to kill him. You know, that was a real twist, you know. Again, it was like, oh, you know, like Dr. Man was saying there's all this good stuff. Okay, the like in my mind, I'm like, yeah, how's, how all I was thinking about is how does Cooper get back to his daughter? And all of a sudden now the stakes are raised. You know, there was a surprise that man wanted to kill him. Um, and then and then even, yeah, like at the end, like there was that major, you mentioned it before, that surprise of they were burning the, the brother's crops so she could have time in the bedroom. And then I thought the brother and that they were going to have a real physical standoff and, and she just hugs him. And yeah. it was a very, like, it, it actually felt like a, it was a real big surprise because I, I was expecting, like, a fight. And she hugs him and she goes, yeah, Dad, Dad was here all along. He was talking to me all along, you know. Like, there's a real candid moment. And, again, that was another surprise. So, yeah, I, I've just thought of that as you were saying, what you, that last thing you were saying, that suddenly there was, there was a film that was, the narrative was full of a lot of surprises for me, the audience, I think. Indeed, and as as we wrap up, I was going to mention there's a new film by uh, Christopher Nolan coming out, written and directed by Christopher Nolan. Uh, it's supposed to be due out in uh, July 17 this year. Uh, we'll see if it meets that deadline. Yeah, well, because I mean, called, cinemas are closed, it's a future, so it's a bit weird, isn't it? Oh, sorry, it's a science fiction film, Tenet, and it also has Michael Caine. Yeah, he loves a bit of Michael Caine. <laughs> so Michael Caine is in the the Dark Knight trilogy. Yeah, uh, is in the Interstellar and in Tenet. Yes. So it's okay, also Kenneth so Branagh. Definitely, look, we'll che- keep a chat. So I mean, yeah, let us know what you thought about Interstellar. I myself had never had a chance to watch this film over the last six years, so it was it was very enjoyable to sit and finally watch it, um, and whether it met my expectations or not, and and this idea of you know, Christopher Nolan makes great films. Is is this a great film? Um, so let us know what you thought about the film Interstellar, uh, and or also what we have talked about tonight. So you can hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, the website. You can find us on all of them. Just Google Space Brains, or I think we are Space Brains Podcast at Facebook and Instagram, and it is Gravity Space Brains Pod at Twitter. Yep. And is Gravity Undone? And uh, I have to say we're going to have a short 
hiatus um, coming up for a, a couple of episodes worth. Yeah. Before we just, come back. Probably just a couple of week break in yeah, between the next couple of, couple of episodes. Nothing too big. Before we... But yeah, we will, we'll just have a little breather um, over this uh, Easter period and everything that's going on. But we will be back very shortly. And that will be We've... for episode 30, which will be a classic. And what classic are we going to look at this time? Sorry. Total Recall. Oh. Another Arnold Schwarzenegger science fiction movie. Yes. This is a good one. Not the uh, remake. Please follow us along and watch the Arnold Schwarzenegger original. Otherwise, it won't make any sense to you at all what we're talking about. No. <laughs> because the, the remake is set on Earth with robots and yes. the Arnie one is set on Mars with mutants. So or be... is it, sorry? Or is it? Or oh. is it? Ooh. Who knows? Okay. So that is us for tonight. Let us know what you think, and we will see you next time on Space Brains. Bye.